power on. And now for another fast-breaking news story, we go to our roving reporter. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants tried to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. The man of tomorrow is here for another uh, little, what we call sovereign tech supplemental, something we're doing in the meantime until we get into those big numbers, baby of sovereign tech episodes. And I am not alone. The golden standing, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star is being joined by none other. Mrs. Sovereign. Yes, absolutely. Mrs. Sovereign, Ellen Sovereign here. Uh, boy, we, we've got a great show lined up. I can't uh, believe I'm back again already. I know. I told you. I said, well, we'll have you back for other things. And and, and, and here we are. Uh, actually, not long after recording. Well, we did a, 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 in fact, this is kind of fitting or will be fitting based on some content that we're going to, or based on some uh, uh, stories that we're going to cover in this episode. And I think people are going to find there's going to be a bit of a running theme in this episode. But we did a review of uh, F9 or Fast and Furious 9 uh, recently that you can listen to as part of the Sovereign at the Movies series. And in that, we discussed Paul Walker and your your displeasure at them treating like his character is still alive in the series, even though the actor's been dead for many years. Um, yeah, it's an unresolved issue. Yeah, we're, we're going to cover, we're going to get into more of that subject. And I'm tempted, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, for sure. But I'm tempted, and I shouldn't even say this because then if I don't do it, people are going to be like, well, wait, why didn't you do that? I'm tempted to go back. And I covered the subject of like holographic actors, at, you know, and, and using actors, you know, after they've died um, on Sovereign Tech years ago, probably in like 2018, 2017, around there. And I'm tempted to tack that onto this episode just to give a little extra value. But really, we don't even need it. I might do it, but we don't even need it because. We've got you here. Right. <laughs> so yeah. And and Problem you're all, solved. Exactly. You are all the action and brilliance uh that anyone could want uh on a podcast or a show of any kind, really. Oh, I'm flattered. What it's the truth. Um, you know, really people have I mean, we just kind of when we did the Fast Nine uh uh review, we just kind of run and gunned, you know, we just opened it up and started talking, more or less. Uh what's going on for you? Like you said, you haven't been on in, in some months. Um, I mean, how's life? You've graduated, you graduated right in December. Right. Yeah. I graduated with my chemical engineering degree yep. with a bioengineering option. So that's, um, you know, major milestone in my life. Absolutely. And since then I played a lot of video games. <laughs> <laughs> you did, you did blow through, um, breath of uh, the wild, breath of the wild. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in three months. Yeah. <laughs> If you can call that blowing through. I mean, the other day we completed the whole Battle Tanks game oh, in one day. Oh, what I'd love to like add on a review of that. <laughs> but I'm sure that'll come up at some point. Um, that that was amazing. Battle yeah. Tanks Global Assault. Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the N64. 
So, which uh, I, I I need to do a review of that because we played that on the EverDrive 64, um, which is just that that's the way to do the N64. Fuck playing it on oh, your PC brilliant. or anything. Yeah, having that that uh, that cartridge that can play ROMs and do so much more, um, and having the original hardware, man, it's so much easier. Well, that that's the big thing, right? You don't have to mess around with all those settings on your emulators. Oh, yeah, because with the N64, it's a pain in the ass. You have like five different engines that you can run. It, some games run better on others. You know, you put the ROM on the, uh, you know, on a micro SD card, throw that into the EverDrive 64 cartridge, slap it into the actual N64. I mean, in a way you go like there's not even a thought. Uh, it, that's how it's meant to be done. But anyway, sorry. Please continue. Yeah, so life's been a lot more fun in some ways now sure. that I'm out of college, you know. But you're working. I um, mean, you're... Yeah, I did I did gain uh, employment. Yeah. So now I'm working at a biopharmaceutical company. Right. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. I don't want to go into too many details, but... Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I have been working. Um, I actually... It's an interesting schedule because I like every two weeks I get seven days off. Yes. And they're like interspersed at weird intervals. Nobody can seem to understand my schedule. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is weird. Like there are weeks where basically Friday, Saturday, I mean, you work 12 hours a day. Right. You know, but you only work like four days a week, uh, more or less, or most of the time. It's two or five. Yeah. But there are you know, like weeks where Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm basically like home alone for hours, you know, like, yeah. And that's hours. why you've been recording so many shows lately. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, <laughs> when we're not doing what, you know, you and I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Like I, I have, I have some time to, you know, get things in and, uh, but, but regardless, uh, I'm incredibly proud of you for what you're, what you're doing. I mean, Thank you're you. actually bringing like, you're, you're doing good for the world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where I work, we make treatments for like genetic diseases, cancers, things mm-hmm. like that. So it does feel good to go to work every day. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing that you're really saving lives. Exactly. Uh, and, and not involved in taking them, which some jobs. <laughs> well, 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 that's funny because we'll get into that later in another story um, that actually came from the Sovereign Tech Telegram group um, about a organization that usually takes lives. That sounds like they're trying to make them last longer. I wonder what that's about, but please continue. Yeah. Well, when I started applying for jobs, I had some pretty strict criteria. Sure. I was not going to work for a military organization. Mm-hmm. Um, anything associated with the military or even the government. I, right. I didn't want to, I mean, you can't avoid it. Um, government regulation is everywhere. Government money is everywhere. You yeah. can't avoid it. You're totally right. Yeah, but I didn't want to work for, like, you know, some big evil corporation that yeah. would rather bl- pay the fines for black label marketing drugs. Right. Uh, because it's more profitable to do that. Um, so I just decided, like, I'll find a, a good company that, you know, just makes the stuff. And, and I think I found it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's fantastic uh, what you're doing. So, and, uh, well, anyway, thank you. Yeah. I think it's fantastic too, because all they do is save lives. They're not, they're not trying to fool anyone. They're not trying to like scam you out of money. Um, and they're certainly not investing in like saving American lives, but 
at the detriment of like brown people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is multinational. Uh, it is. It's a global company. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and that's, which is good. Um, but well, anyway, so you're doing good, just busy as hell, right? I mean, <laughs> like your schedule is pretty insane. It feels that way. I mean, I keep myself busy a lot of the time with, right. you know, uh, keeping up with life, but then I have all these side projects. Like I can never stay still for too long. No, we're the same. We're, we're always <laughs> yeah. doing like side projects and everything. And yeah, I, I get that. So. Yeah, but it's it's great because I'm in this like I I have time off now. When mm -hmm. I come home from work, I don't have to do homework. So I can spend that time actually learning to do other things. Right. Like I think I might have mentioned this already, but I took an online fermentation course through Harvard for free. That yeah. And I completed it. And what fantastic results. Those yeah. pickles were awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I make some killer kimchi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we just had that. Boy, that was good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I'm, I am awfully jealous of that. In fact, I, uh, hmm. <laughs> I, I I might be looking around because like I, boy, you Your know, job doesn't let you shut your brain off. No. And, and it's, it's at home. Like, like I, I work remote, I've worked remotely for years and like, there's no door to close on it. There is no door to close on it. And, and. This is a reckoning that society has to, has to come to because I am one of the most, like, like I can, I can, you know, get through, fight through any trench. Uh, and, and th like this kind, this kind of schedule or not, not just schedule. It's not necessarily a schedule, right? It's, it's a, a non-schedule. It's a not, yeah, that's a, Hey, that's a great way of putting that. It's a non-schedule. And it's because you cannot close the door on it. Um, and because it's like performance based, it's not like X, you know, you do X and Y and you'll get Z, right? It's not that, um, you know, th this, and, and so much of work like that is like that today that it, it drives you nuts because even if I could say, well, I could just turn off all my computers, turn off all my phones and no one can get in touch with me. But then you're still like thinking, well, gee, I hope what I just did, you know, worked as to where, you know, if it was a job where I'm producing widgets, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Here comes the widget and you're done, you know, and, and, and that's great. But like, this is a real reckoning because yeah, that, that, that we've got to come to anyway, I don't want to get lost on all of that because it, it just, it drives me nuts talking about it just frankly makes it worse so <laughs> the reckoning is that people are starting to live lives where they work non-stop essentially yeah and part of the reason they work non-stop too is be it, part of it speaks to this global nature in that like like you know what makes it worse is that a lot of clients are all over the world i don't have a problem with people living anywhere else in the world i don't have a problem with other with other you know territories, regions, and like, and the people in them. I don't, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is like, from the moment I wake up, I'm wondering if the people in Europe are happy the next day. Right. And, and that's like, you wake up instantly thinking about the job because guess what? Those people in Europe will email you at 4am, you know, 4am Eastern. Right. And it's maddening. You know, like, like it's, it's really, really maddening and very all consuming because essentially there is no time that the clock doesn't stop ticking, you know, and there's no like real team. Like, you know, it's me 
handling clients, you know, and I am the person who handles these clients entirely. It's not like there's shifts, you know, that, that switch yeah. out that are handling things. No, it's one person and like remote work. I'm, you know, it's so funny because I'm reading every story and how fast companies say, Oh, remote work. Oh yes. It's the future. It's this. And people fuck that. Like I want, I would love to go to a place to work and that I can slam the door on. And I don't care if the door hits my ass on the way out. Like, I'm just glad there's a goddamn door, you know, that closes it. And I, I don't, I don't know what's with these people. I, 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 I just, I, I don't, I almost don't believe that these people exist that somehow like are willing to quit their present job just so that they could find something where they continue to work remote. They have no fucking idea how brutal remote work remote work is it's it's far worse than um you know than than frankly any factory you know like i i mean just give me a break these people are out of touch to reality bottom line you know uh but that's true for most people anyway <laughs> yeah and even in the last few months you've seen like a few people at your company drop yeah yeah. Uh, and, and I think a lot of that is, is the same thing because again, as I've said many times on sovereign tech episodes, um, you know, the other part is that you had people in 2020, right. During the pandemic who, you know, didn't have work or whatever. And I, and you know, I can feel bad for them in one sense. And then in the other sense, it's like, I don't know what the hell those people are talking about. My work tripled, you know, in 2020 because everybody wanted to get online you know, and, and have a digital presence and whatever else and fucking insane, you know, and, and, and no, it's too much work for some people. They don't realize it Yeah, going in. Yeah. So, so I think there are people who, you know, either a learned to be grateful for the job that they had, right. Or B got just pushed way too far um, because they were basically making up for the slack of the, the rest of the economy being out of, you know, out of, out of, out of commission. Right. Cause everything went remote and online. And so anybody that was in the business of making sure things remote and online worked, got fucked, got fucked hard. And, um, those people, frankly, and granted I'm speaking for myself as well, deserve a fucking vacation. <laughs> like, because, cause 2020 killed us, you know, and, and, and yeah. And <laughs> you're ready. I, I could go done. on and on. Yeah. But I mean, you know, at the same time, right. You got to make money in the world to live. And, and so, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm considering other, other employee, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll admit to that. Um, because fucking a, <laughs> was it, was it just, was it so nuts? I mean, I, I, you know, people are like, Oh, where's this sovereign tech? Where's this episode? Where's this? And it's, it's like, Guys, gals, Z's, you got to understand, you know, like how the world's been working <laughs> lately. And there's those of us who are just dying for distraction. And then there's those of us who are dying from like our workloads turning into, you know, madness, uh, you know, throughout 2020. And, 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 and it kind of hasn't stopped. So anyway, that's that. <laughs> I didn't know I'd be getting into this diatribe, but I, but I did it. Um, so that's how your year has been going. 
yeah, I guess for an update on me, that that's 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 how it's been going. Is that it's just been it's just been absolutely you know nonstop. Um, so anyway, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna figure this out. <laughs> so even though it's been so crazy, um, have you had any time to listen to audiobooks? I still have. You know, that's that's the fortunate thing, right? Um, so not not as many as I'd like. Uh, so I know you've had time to get in some books uh, as well. And we sure. need, let, why don't we do a little book club, which is what people love that we do when, when we're on together. Oh, um, wow. I love it too. Well, right. Yeah. So I think we should get into this. I'm only going to have one pick, but one of your picks is a book that I've read as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll call it even. Um, but anyway, I, I guess, should I start off? Yeah. All right, I'll start off. So the book that I'm reviewing or that that I had read recently, and I was really excited for this one. And actually, here's someone else who really, I know, understands like a crazy, crazy schedule. And that is J. Michael Straczynski, Uh, of course, the creator of Babylon 5, a personal hero of mine, just one of those real integrity guys out there who, you know, as much as we complain, you and I, Ellen, as much as we complain about modern entertainment and cinema and everything, and that it doesn't say anything, Straczynski is one of the guys that still makes sure that, that the media that he puts out, he puts out there says something, you know, and has a point and a purpose. Uh, So he's, he actually released a couple books in June or wait, one came out in May. And then I think the other came out in June. I did not read the one in June, which is a novel. I'll get to it. It's not science fiction. So it's not my usual brand, but that's fine. Um, but the book that he wrote in May was Becoming a Writer, Staying a Writer. And this uh, this is sounds exactly what it sounds like, you know, where or it is exactly what it sounds like, where it's a book about what's it like being a writer and how to keep in the game, you know. And it was it's, it wasn't, it didn't have like a bunch of rules on grammar and everything. And he makes that really clear up front. Uh, but I, I really liked this book. Uh, and he was basically, you know, from a lot of different, he was talking about if you're a writer for video games, if you're a script writer, if you're a novel writer, a short story writer, like all different types of writers, he had really good generalized kind of tips of how to survive as a writer, how to deal, you know, like be in relationships with a writer, like all these different aspects that I, I thought were, were really, really cool. Um, Straczynski's written books, and I mean like almost 30 years ago, about, like he wrote a book about script writing, if I remember. Uh, but th- this this was a book that was very inspiring because he also got into a lot of the kind of the rebellious act that writing is. And I thought that, and that was very inspirational, which inspiration is maybe the number one thing I think that any writer needs, you know, to make it happen is he needs that energy and inspiration to keep him, her, you know, going. Um, so I, I just, I thought it was a, a brilliant, you know, little book. And if anybody wants to be a writer, I think this is one of the important books to read. Again, it's not going to teach you grammar. It's not going to teach you all that, but it's going to teach you the attitude of a writer, which I, don't know other than like, you know, Harlan Ellison giving some diatribe on the matter. I don't know any other, any book that, that really does that, that really concentrate focuses on that aspect of like basically how to survive mentally as a writer. Uh, so I, I, I thought it was great. Um, 
maybe the like an interesting tip in it, or I thought the more interesting parts had to do with, because I I've been in this stage. Like I'm not really at the stage now where I need to be alone to write. I don't, I don't need to be alone to write. Um, but he talks about how, you know, a writer, like you're going to have to get used to the fact that you might, there might be hours in the day where the person has to just lock themselves in a room and write. And that's the only way that they can do it. You know, that's the only way that they can, you know, put, uh, uh, you know, words to paper as it were. Um, and getting into things like that, I think could be very helpful for a lot of people that haven't done a lot of writing because when you're writing, you're really bearing your soul. I mean, like there, even if it's has nothing to do technically with you in one way, form or fashion, it does. And, uh, I think a lot of writers are perfectionists, you know, and they, it's best when someone isn't there, like you know, either interrupting or potentially seeing what they have going on or whatever. And I've been at that stage as a writer. I don't need that kind of space any longer, but I've been there. And so, you know, things like that, I thought were really great to finally have somebody say, you know, and, and have it available in a book fashion. So a tremendous read, uh, short, but well worth it if you're interested in writing. So, uh, what do you got? Oh, so did you find, uh, like any helpful tips for you? Have, did you read anything in that book that you think would really uh, like improve on your writing skills? Well, so here's the funny thing. Um, I do think like, I, I definitely found a lot of inspiration in it that I enjoyed. Um, and like a lot of purpose behind writing, like the, the again, that really rebellious act that is writing. Um, there was the tip of, that it's always the small things that are what stick with people. Like you don't like, if you want to go big, this, this sounds kind of cliche, but if you want to go big, think small, meaning that the stuff that sticks with people when you're writing are the little things, not the big, like, holy shit, the planet's going to explode and blah, 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 whatever. That's in a million different stories. People aren't going to remember that. What people are going to remember are two guys in a shuttle wondering about asking each other, well, do you fasten then zip when you go to the bathroom or not? Right. And, and he gave a bunch of examples of like how the small details are the things that haunt people forever, you know, uh, either the characters in the story or the readers themselves. And that was a re that was really helpful. Uh, and a nice pullback on modern media, because I think in modern media, everything is just bigger, 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 bigger. Like, okay, well, if the earth's not threatened, we need to threaten the galaxy. Oh, no, we are. Right, we threatened the galaxy, you know, in 20 movies. Now we need to threaten the entire universe, right? I, I mean, everything just keeps going bigger, bigger to the point of meaninglessness. What means something to somebody are the, just the little things, you know, the thumbtack in the, in the toe, as it were. Those are the things that people remember. Um, or the little things that just, again, that haunt you forever. So, so that, that was really helpful for me, but frankly, a lot of it sounded like Harlan and like Joe Straczynski, I also had the honor of being a friend with Harlan. So a lot of that stuff, like I've already heard, you know? So for me, like there were a lot of things that weren't as helpful, but I recognize where they were helpful for, you know, for me at one point. And I think that for a lot of people that maybe have never heard this stuff, it'd be life-changing. 
So does that. So you would recommend this book? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those books that uh, I have like a list of books, especially in the Audible app that I always keep downloaded. This is one of those. And it takes a lot to be put in that number. So yeah. so is this a book for anyone or just anyone looking to write? I think it's it's really for writers. Ultimately, it's for writers. It really speaks to to them, you know. Um, I don't think it's like a, I mean, you know, if you want life lessons, Straczynski also has his autobiography, which is brilliant, uh, Becoming Superman. Um, yeah, that, that I'd recommend for like anybody to read. And there's a lot to take away from it because boy, that, that guy has lived. So, which you wouldn't believe it when you look at him, but, <laughs> but he really has. So yeah, great read, uh, Becoming a Writer, Staying a Writer. By, uh, by J. Michael Straczynski, or God, as I often call him. So there you go. Um, did you have any other questions on it, or you want to? No, I, I think that's good. We can move on. Sure. We still have two other books to cover. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we get into, let's do the book that I haven't read that that you wanted to, to, to get into during the book club. Um and so again, all of these are on Audible because we list we we read them quote unquote on Audible. Uh, so wait, what what is this one about the octopus? Oh, so this book is called "The Soul of an Octopus" by Cy Montgomery. Okay, and it's <laughs> it is about octopuses, octopi, octopod, however you want to say I it. I think it's octopuses. Yeah, I think that's grammatically correct yes. as well. Yeah, um, because you can't just make American words sound Greek right. to, to be plural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's not exactly like a biography about octopuses. Oh. It's more so a biography, an autobiography about Cy Montgomery as okay. she is exploring the world of octopuses, um, which she actually does at the Boston Aquarium, which mm -hmm. is fairly close to New Hampshire. Uh, it, at some point, she's talking about scuba diving here in New Hampshire. So um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Like, this is yeah. somebody that we could have potentially run into at any point over the last few years. Absolutely. Um, but it's really fascinating because she's she basically wrote this book as a sort of love letter to octopuses. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I think the title is really fitting because she spends a lot of time just trying to understand these seemingly alien organisms. And they really do seem alien. You know, they have eight tentacles. They've got hundreds of suckers on each one of these tentacles. Each sucker is as powerful powerful enough to lift 20 pounds on Which its is, own. That's amazing. Right. I mean, and, and let's be clear. There are plenty of quote-unquote experts out there who would love to claim that cephalopods are alien. But anyway are literal aliens, but continue. Right. Uh, yeah. They're just freaky. Like they can squeeze through yeah, any weird. hole that's, you know, as big as their beak. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. She just goes to the aquarium and gets to know all these octopuses. Um, there's a series of them. They don't live very long, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the octopuses that she was studying, they only live to be a few years old. Um, but what I really loved about this book was that she she wrote in such a way that made it 
easy to empathize with octopuses and to really get a better understanding of what it would be like to live as one of them. Uh They seem to become attached to people. Uh, You know, they make friends with other creatures that might be different species in their tank. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, their whole sensory system is different than ours. Like they can taste through their skin. They can sense all sorts of molecules. Like they can tell if you're stressed or if you're on a different medication. Um, Yeah. So it's just a book that is... To me, really inspiring because it kind of points towards this idea that they could be sapient. They could be highly intelligent and very emotional creatures, mm-hmm. um, even though they are seemingly alien compared to us. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, you know, this is something else I've talked about many times on the show, uh, I consider cephalopods to be in the, on the sapient list. Um, who am I to say what's sapient and what's not? Well, I'm basing it on research of others, but still, um, you know, and, and I would include elephants. Um, you know, there, there's a few different dolphins, obviously. Uh, there, there's a few different species and groups that I would include, uh, you know, in that. Um, they are amazing creatures. Now, is this the book where you were telling me about how at the Boston Aquarium, people that have worked there long enough, like this idea that fish like have no. Oh, right. Yeah. So she spends a lot of time at the aquarium in mm. this book and she gets to know the curators there yeah. who have been there basically like their whole working lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that's really fascinating is that you get to find out about you know, their job there. Right. And obviously they spend all day, every day around fish and they can tell the difference between fish's moods, fish's personalities. They all have individual names. Uh, You can even smell when a fish is stressed. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Just interesting little changes in their biology that you can really pick up on if you spend enough time with them. And that's that's another cool thing is that it kind of points towards, you know, the fish having emotions and fish having personalities. Right. Which is pretty antith. I mean, that's not popular opinion, Uh, I think, in science and not just in science, but in other other avenues. Uh, a lot of people basically see fish as like, well, they don't feel pain. They really don't feel anything. And, you know, they're, they're, they're and just... you know what? I think a lot of that is just based on the fact that fish don't make facial expressions. Yeah, sure. Right. They have those big dead fish eyes. And we don't really hear sounds. Not no. really, you know, from them. So they don't really have many ways of expressing emotion except mm-hmm. for the way that they move around. Yeah. I mean, well here, like even so, you know, uh, I'm Jewish, was raised, you know, in pretty orthodox Judaism. And in Judaism, like fish isn't even considered meat. I mean, literally, it's not considered meat. I mean, there's still like kashrut law that that covers some aspects of fish, which, by the way. It's not just in in Judaism, though. No, right. in every other diet. I mean, pescatarianism is officially recognized as a form of vegetarianism. Exactly. Right. Um. And even if it is, boy, don't touch the catfish. (laughs) 
Yeah. That shit's disgusting. No, the Jews were right about that one. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking gross. Anyway, <laughs> no, so, scaleless fish. Oh, bottom feeders. Anyway. I could give up on most shellfish, but shrimp are still pretty tasty. They are pretty. T- those sea bugs are pretty good. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. Um, but I mean, but there's that underlying, you know, concept that's thousands of years old that like fish aren't even, I mean, when you're saying fish aren't meat, you're basically saying they're not even animals. Right. I mean, in a very, in a, in a, in a very real way or in a very real sense, well, they're a very different kind of animal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't even, I don't even feel like insects get that bad of a, of a, of a rub uh, or get that bad of a deal. Well, nobody and, thinks of insects as meat either. Yeah, I suppose it depends on what part of the world you are, but you could say the same, say the same thing for fish. So in any case, um, that is, that is a fascinating notion, you know, that when you spend enough time around these creatures, uh, that, well, you know, actually there's a lot going on there, you know, that most people don't really think about. Um, in fact, it was interesting. So I want to, I want to bring this up quick. So we watched uh, Chain of Command recently, which Chain of Command is season six, two-parter for Star Trek The Next Generation, where Picard gets captured by the Cardassians. It's a classic, right? And they did a special Blu-ray release of this um, where it, uh, like, where they made it into a single movie instead of it being a two-parter. Did you like it? Did you, did you? You've yeah. seen it before. Did you think the movie version like fit better? Yeah, you know what? I couldn't even tell that it was two separate episodes. It right. flowed so well that it just seemed like one large feature. Yeah, the edit really worked. And I think actually, you know, I'll tell you, like if that was a movie, if that was a movie movie, I think it'd be the best next generation movie ever made. Wow. Uh, probably. All good things might top it. But anyway, but that's another conversation for another time that I know you'd love to have. Uh, anyway, so I was I was actually listening to um, the the commentary on it where they had Ronnie Cox who plays Captain Jellico. A lot of people know Ronnie Cox as uh, Dick Jones from uh, from RoboCop, and he was in Total Recall, a bunch of other films, um, Deliverance. Anyway, so Ronnie Cox was talking, and he said that in uh, everybody kind of remembers the the lionfish. That's in Picard's ready room. Okay. In fact, that, that lionfish had a name. It was Lexington. Um, in chain of command, th- there's a point where, uh, we're, or it's kind of the crux or one of the cruxes of the episode is that captain Jellico takes over for captain Picard because Captain Picard is on a secret mission. And so he's running the enterprise and he gets to a point where he's like making all these crazy changes. He's a real hard ass and everything. I, I think he's great, but he says, get that fish out of the ready room. And his Ronnie Cox's claim is that Patrick Stewart hated the fact that there was a fish in a bowl in the ready room, not because Patrick Stewart hates fish. In fact, he probably eats them. Okay. Not because of that, but because he felt like the, the, that Star Trek was all about the dignity of all species. And the idea of a fish essentially being in a cage was anathema to, to what Star Trek was about, you know, and no one ever got rid of the fish until Jellicoe came on board season six. And yes, Roddenberry was finally gone, but season six happens. And then, you know, they 
basically they use Jellicoe to make all these like grand changes that the writing team and actors always wanted to make to the show. Um, and, but I, I was really stunned by that, by Patrick Stewart to like, think at that level of the dignity of all species and that you shouldn't even have a fish in a bowl. Right. Well, he's right. Wow. Oh, okay. Well, tell me, I mean, well, when you tell me this about, you know, about the, at the Boston aquarium, which of course is, you know, one of the largest fish bowls on the planet. When you tell me about this, like, and, and, and the experiences that, the, that everybody that works there has were like, wow, you know, no, really, like I know when they're stressed out, like they have na- you know, names, they have this. And some would argue maybe there's some anthropomorphizing going on, but uh, it does raise the question, like, how dare we put these things in any kind of tank or bowl? What do you think? Yeah, well, I I do think that Patrick Stewart had a point there that, mm-hmm. you know, in accordance with giving every creature their birthright to freedom, essentially, uh-huh. we shouldn't be keeping them imprisoned. And maybe there's a justification that you could make at a certain level where we need to learn about these creatures. And once we realize, oh, they have intelligence, they have emotions, it's just on a, of a lesser degree than mm-hmm. what we have. And that doesn't make them inferior to us or less deserving of the life that they were born to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe you could make that justification that like, we need to study them, but at some point, once you realize these animals, you know, they can't live caged up. At least they can't live to their full potential. Right. Uh, they're never going to be fully happy or fully expressive. Right. Um, then I think the best thing that you can do is let them go. And if you want to study them or if you want to befriend them or whatever, uh, you know, at least Go to them. Meet them in the middle. So this gal who wrote this book, did she talk about orcas at all? I don't think so. No. Okay. I mean, like, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. Like, in fact, the orca has, like, long been, I think, the case for this. In fact, well, well no, that was a humpback whale in Star Trek Four. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but orca in in captivity, like, their fin, their top fin their top dorsal fin slumps like it hangs over Mm -hmm. never to go straight again. Like it's, and no one can understand why no one gets it. Like they're, they're getting fed if if not more than, than, than they would out in the wild. They're being taken care of, you know, to tremendous degrees supposedly. But they're living in these tiny tanks and they can't even swim full speed. Right. Imagine like if you lived in a small enclosure Imagine if you were stuck in this house your entire life. Or in a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, sorry. You, Please you continue. Couldn't even, no, you couldn't even go outside. So your house is comfortable, right? Uh-huh. It's got everything you need to live. But tell me that you can experience the joy of running full speed through a meadow when you're stuck in a house all day. Sure. And what a joy that is and, and how much there there is to that more than, than we even realize. <laughs> like the exhilaration that you feel when yeah. you're running full speed. Yeah. You'll never get that if you stay inside all day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I'm just like, I'm totally reminded of, of, of the book, Peter Pan, uh, where like where it talks about like you could smell the wind in his hair, you know, and, and, right. and I think that used to be a thing. 
that you could smell windswept hair. Like, like when, when somebody lived a life, either riding horses or whatever the hell it was, or just running so much, or, you know, whatever the case may be that you could smell the wind in their hair. That used to be a thing. I'm sure that is long dead by, 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 by such domesticated animals like humans today. And I say that derogatorily, uh, but, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I think, I think this book is hinting or expressly based on what you're, what you've shared with me that, uh, wow, you know, are are we not giving these creatures their due? No, definitely not. And there's a point in the story where one of the octopuses is kind of stuck in this small barrel, Mm -hmm. um, and it's outgrowing the barrel and they want to move it to a bigger tank, Mm -hmm. but there's just no space because this was happening around the time when, uh, they were doing the, the big renovations uh, like they added a bunch of new tanks and they were completely refitting the the big central tank. If you've ever been to the Boston Aquarium, uh, there's a giant cylindrical tank in, right the, in the middle. middle. Yeah. And there's a spiral staircase that goes around all the way up to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like three stories high or something like that. Uh, but anyway, so they were moving all of these fish around and they didn't have space for this octopus. And it was depressed. It was like... Yeah really sad um and when they put it in the new tank that was you know at least three times larger right. it had room to fully spread out its tentacles it was a lot happier sure um and i do think that in the book she expressed some regret at having to keep these animals in captivity mm-hmm. um which i would feel awful Seeing an octopus stuck in a tiny tank every day, like not even able to stretch out. Yeah. Um, and even when they are allowed to be in the bigger tank, that's it's still not engaging enough for them. They're used to, uh, you know, living in the wild. They have so many puzzles to solve, you know, they, they are hunting all the time mm-hmm. or uh, playing. And in the aquarium, they have to substitute a lot of, like games and puzzles uh, and just try to keep the octopuses occupied because if they don't, then the octopus will get bored and it will try to escape and they're masters at escape. Oh, they're, 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 they're they're lock pickers. I mean, they're, (laughs) they're safe crackers. They're, you know, they're better than Houdini. Yeah. They find, they find a way, any weakness, they will sniff it out. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you recommend this book for anybody or is this more like, is this layman or is this more for maybe the more scientifically inclined? Oh, this is definitely for anyone. Yeah. You, there's not a lot of scientific language. You don't need to know anything about octopuses going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she does a really good job at explaining a lot of these things. Phenomenal. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's not exactly, uh, it's not fiction. It's not, I wouldn't call it a novel. But it's it's kind of like a an essay, a larger essay. Okay. As well as an autobiography. Kind of a diary, maybe? Yeah, sort of. Okay. I mean, she talks about the octopuses probably as much as she talks about herself. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, it's it's a good story to listen to, and it certainly helped me to have more understanding and empathy for sea creatures. Nice. Um, okay. Octopuses, especially. Yeah. Like yeah. I kind of I want one, but at the same time, I would feel horrible keeping it 
in a tank because they just find ways to get out. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally on team cephalopod. I mean, even when, um, even when I was a, you know, meat eater, uh, like on the paleo diet or whatever, anytime we were ordering, you know, like at a, at a, a, a you know, an Asian restaurant, um, like what, what do you call it? Not, not sushi, but when they bring out like the plate of just the fish, Sashimi? Um, yeah, thank you. Sashimi. There you go. Um, I'd always tell it, like, I don't want any of the octopus. I'm just not. I know it's already cut up and back there, but I'm just not interested. You yeah, know, don't in, contribute in that. to that. Yeah, not at, not at all. So, I mean, people draw their lines where, you know, and where, where their tolerances are. But anyway, um, that sounds like a fantastic read. And I hope to get to it someday myself. Uh, one that we did both get to, though. Uh, unless, did you have anything else on that one? No. Okay. No, we can move on. Sure. So one that I did get to, and we actually talked about previously, but you got around to reading it, and I think it's still fairly timely uh, to discuss. Actually, I think it's always timely because it's just a matter of fucking time before, you know, the next pandemic of any kind. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Here uh, we go. Yeah. So um, so the book is <laughs> How to Survive a Pandemic by Dr. Michael Greger. Uh, actually, I should say by Michael Greger, MD, um, the whole doctor thing. I know in, in PR, you want to give the title as an MD or PhD. You don't want to use doctor because anybody can basically claim to be a doctor. Yeah, you can. Well, I, I, I actually <laughs> went through a process here, uh, you know. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It says right there on the wall, <laughs> doctor of divinity. So, so you must have gone to school for like. Eight years to oh, get that, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in in, in God's eyes, a minute is a year. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was eight minutes. I don't know. Yeah. There is no God. Uh, <laughs> except <on>. Michael Straczynski. <laughs> except for J. Michael Straczynski. Exactly. Uh, as I said earlier. So, um, okay. So Michael Greger, MD. Big fan of this guy. I love this guy. Every yeah. one of his books I recommend. In fact, at some point, you, you read... I got you a copy of, what is it, Carbophobia? Carbophobia. You were telling me about this in, in a recent uh, trip that we had. We'll just leave it at that. And boy, this sounds like a dynamite read, Carbophobia. But we'll, we'll save that one for another time. So, but how to survive. But I mean, in case you can't tell by the by the title, it's, it's ripping apart the low-carb diet, uh, Carbophobia. So. Yeah, that's why I love it. Yeah. I mean, and it's brutal. Uh, but. Anyway, we will talk about that book at a, at a future date. Um, so how to survive a pandemic. Your thoughts on this. So this book really opened my eyes to the history of pandemics. Um, and yeah. I know that, you know, any time that people are exposed to a new population, there's mm. the possibility of a pandemic breaking out. Right. Which for the past, you know, thousands of years... It's been pretty rare. Mm -hmm. uh, they do happen, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and they do their thing. They sweep through the population. A certain percentage of people die, but then everyone else has the immunity. Right. Um, but it's only been over the last 100 years that we've seen the rise of influenza, of hundreds of types of influenza. Right. And I was shocked by that. Like, before 1900... Basically, nobody got influenza. It yeah. came to humans through the the farming of birds. 
mm-hmm. of like ducks, geese, um, chickens. Chickens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> chickens came a little later. Yeah. But yeah, essentially, like when people started uh, packing birds into like giant sheds and and growing them mm-hmm. for food specifically, that's when all these pandemics started breaking out. And influenza is a really interesting one because apparently it survives as a harmless virus in the duck population, in the wild duck population. And ducks carry it around. Uh, ducks that are infected, you can't tell the difference between a right. a duck that doesn't have it and a duck that does. Right. Um, because it doesn't harm them. But when ducks are flying through the air and they, you know, poop on another bird or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's when, uh, you know, chicken populations or geese populations or pigeons or whatever, mm-hmm. they can transmit the influenza virus to our food supply. And that's when it becomes a problem. Because if a wild bird has this, it the, the rates of transmission in the wild are really, really low. Mm-hmm. Like basically like one or two percent. Right. Compared to when you shove a bunch of birds into a hen house, the the less space that they have for breathing fresh air or for pooping and not getting it on another bird, mm-hmm. like the chances of infecting the entire flock increase dramatically. Right. And that is what has brought about all these modern diseases is modern farming methods. Shoving animals closer and closer together. And not only that, but like feeding them the remains of other animals. Yeah. It's just, it's really twisted. Uh, A dose of globalization doesn't help either. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, because now you can transport entire flocks of birds Mm -hmm. or already carved up animals, Mm -hmm. like not only across the States, but over the ocean. Right. Um, in places like China, where it's traditionally accepted to eat all sorts of weird animals, including yeah. bats, yep. um, are especially problematic. Mm-hmm. Because in places where it's traditionally acceptable to, to eat all sorts of animals, you have you know wet markets where all of these animals are stacked on top of each other. So mm-hmm. like all of their poop and respiratory droplets is intermingling. Uh so it's no wonder that like new new varieties of influenza or any other virus are arising every single year. Sure. Yeah, I mean in this, you know, after reading this book and I've I know I've kind of uh term dropped, I'll say that. Uh this concept of the chicken holocaust um many times because like Dr. Greger basically, you know, espouses this saying, okay, it's it's time to kill however many millions of chickens. And he's only talking about chickens that are, like, in the farms. Yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, he also espouses just getting rid of modern farming methods altogether. Yeah. That would be the safest thing for humans. Right. No more factory farming. Get all those animals out into fields where mm-hmm. they can breathe fresh air, where when they poop, there's no other animals there to ingest it, as yeah. gross as that sounds. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely. Have you ever heard you you've met, have you met Joel Salatin? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I met him at Porkfest. Yep. 
Yeah, I think I might, might have been Liberty Forum for me, but I've also met him at Porkfest. And yeah, I mean, just the way that guy talks about, like, here's how you do a complete ecosystem, you know, of farming with biodiversity and everything. And basically letting, like, just letting it happen automatically via nature and the animals themselves. Man, it's the most beautiful fucking thing. It is. It's really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. He's dynamite in what he recommends and suggests. Uh, you know, I'd like combine him and Dr. Gregor. And boy, I think you've got a hell of a recipe for success. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Dr. Gregor would recommend don't eat any red meat or chickens for that matter. Yeah. I, so it's fair to bring up that Dr. Gregor is big on the plant-based diet. Uh, I like to caveat that with, because I have read all of his books. I know you have too, Ellen. Um, he, you know, he's big on like 80, 20, basically saying it's like, okay, if you're not going to wipe out meat completely, like at least just help cut it down, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I don't expect you to have a perfect diet all the time, but understand, you know, like the benefits of making your diet more plant-based, uh, and the benefits of less meat, you know, which I think is, that's the way to go. Don't just like tell people, oh, you you know, bastard or whatever, you know, for eating this. Yeah, no. Like explain the benefits of not eating it and benefits of adding other things in. Right. Um, that's a great point to bring up too, is mm -hmm. just increasing the amount of plant matter in your diet. Yeah. Is always beneficial. Sure. Even if you're still eating meat, like cut it down little by little. Right. And introduce more plants and you'll reap the health benefits pretty much immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you read this book, in my opinion, you get an understanding of, you know, the two pandemics, or at least not, not two, I should say, you get an understanding, understanding of how a pandemic can happen, how it works, you know, what that looks like. And that's where it gets into how to survive one. Um, but I, I really think you walk away because we don't have, there's not enough understanding of, you know, what happened, you know, in the early 20th century with Spanish flu. I was, you know, just slack jawed listening to this myself and, and, and what that was like and how, like, part of the reason we don't really know a whole lot about the Spanish flu is because people just decided upon a collective amnesia, you know, to like, let's just pretend it never fucking happened. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> just as many people died of, of the black, what was it? The black, oh, the black plague. plague. Yeah. Oh man. That's a whole other thing. Continue. Well, no, I, um, the Spanish flu mm -hmm. killed so many people. It mm -hmm. was almost like the world had gone through another world war. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like it's important to understand those effects, the social effects and all of that and how all of this works scientifically, medically, how all of this works, what's bringing it on. And yeah, like, I mean, talk about getting rid of like any, anything avian out of your diet. Yeah. Holy shit. Well, like, because when these pandemics break out, like in China mm -hmm. or in the U.S., which this isn't the first time that this has happened. This right. has happened multiple times, even over the past decade. Yeah. And governments have cracked down and told people to kill off their chicken flock or chill, mm -hmm. kill off their duck flocks. Mm -hmm. uh, like, this isn't new. It's just I don't think people realize how close we have come to outbreaks. Right. Of another pandemic. Right. Yeah. And, and that that's exactly, and you're getting exactly what I wanted to get at is that like it, people are thinking that, you know, 
uh, COVID-19 was, oh, wow, this like, you know, earth shattering, this has never happened before, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, you don't get it. Like it's a miracle that like, this hasn't happened every year, that this doesn't happen all the time, that this is the, like, like this. Yeah. And, and not only that, like, and this is, this is a message. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Robin Cook's books, uh, like Invasion, Cell, Coma, even Sphinx, which isn't a medical book, but he's known for like his medical thrillers. I love his books. And in his books, he's always hitting at this, that like, you, you don't get it. You know, wars are nothing. Wars are barely, you know, a pockmark as far as a threat to humanity. Uh, the real threat is, you know, is this possibility of pandemic at any given moment. And I mean, he was writing like he's so far ahead of the game on 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 how these things could happen, maybe even did happen and, and so on. Um yeah, like if if you're if you are the kind of person who's like a survivalist about, well, how am I going to get past, you know, economic collapse and the next world war or whatever? Boy, read this book because no, how do you survive this shit? You know, how do you survive, you know, th this sort of thing? And I don't necessarily think that a uh, uh a little injection is the answer either. But anyway, continue. Yeah, not that I'm a huge fan of government action at no, all. No, no. But I think part of the reason that we haven't seen a pandemic like this in recent history is because of certain governments around the world telling local people, sorry, you've got to kill all of your mm. your flocks. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the organic, like, grass-fed, you know, free-range, whatever, like, mm -hmm. those aren't the problem. The small-scale stuff where chickens and ducks are able to roam around freely that's not exactly the problem. That's not where pandemics break out. It's right. these giant factory farms. It's just that any flock can be a carrier. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing, like, I think that it's once you read this book, you'll get a much better understanding of, of how COVID-19 functions as right. a virus. Um and and this was written actually kind of early in the pandemic, so yes. I'm sure new research has come out since then. Yeah, this came out like May 2020. Right. Yeah. Um, but essentially, I think this throws a lot of water on the idea that it was a lab leak, that it was created in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. And I think there's other evidence to suggest that it was naturally evolved. Lots of people want to claim that it was... A, you know, created in a lab because there's these aberrant sequences of DNA, mm -hmm. but there's also studies to suggest otherwise. Uh, anyway, the whole idea of it being created in a lab and then released uh, on purpose or even accidentally, um, I think that's giving a lot of credit where it's not due. Yeah. I think it's far more likely. I mean, it's possible it, yeah. because we definitely have the technology to do things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this book makes, at least it made me see how easy it is to transmit that sort of virus and to, to even like generate a new virus, which can happen at any moment because these viruses are just mutating all the time. Right. And COVID-19 specifically, uh, has, a like an ACE2 receptor or something like that, that, that attaches 
really nicely to the tongues of civets. <laughs> and that also kind of matches up with our our stomach lining. Sure. Yeah. Well, so one, it's or ahead. I mean our respiratory lining. Respiratory sorry. lining. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um like once I read that, I felt like I had a better understanding of how it's transmitted and mm-hmm. how easily it could jump from species to species. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a much according to Occam's razor, it just makes more sense. Sure. It's easier for that to happen. Yeah. And I don't want to give any sort of government or laboratory credit unless I know for sure that they want to claim that credit. <laughs> You're right. They want to be proud of that shit. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, something I want to say, say quick to make abundantly clear. Um, the no, no administration handled COVID-19 right or well. Uh, the Trump administration didn't handle it well. The Biden administration didn't handle it well or right. Um, and where government, you know, and I and I know you feel this way, Ellen, but like where government may have done, say, or enacted the right thing at a local level, at like a hyper-local level, um, obviously education would have been the better thing and done better than government in the first place, you know. Uh, but I just want to make that like super clear that <laughs> like no, nobody like as, 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 like this book lays out, I think, more actionable, proper steps to take and to go with. Yeah. You know, that blow away anything that any government on the planet did during COVID-19. Right. Yeah. The right. best things to do. Eliminate factory farming. If you do have animals, spread mm-hmm. them out. Give them more space. Yep. And also stock up on hand sanitizer. Make your own. Make with, your own. With vodka. Vodka and <laughs> vegetable glycerin. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, but I I just really like, I just want to make sure that Sovereign Tech's stance, you know, is that nobody handled this right. Not Biden, not not Trump, nobody, nobody fucked it. Everybody fucked it up. So anyway, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, continue with, if you have more on this book. Well, I I think that pretty much sums it up. I just, I think the biggest thing, at least for me right now, Mm -hmm. is that I hear... A lot of stupidity online, Ooh. <laughs> especially on YouTube from other independent news sources Oh yeah, that want to go down this rabbit hole of like Dr. Fauci in collaboration with the Chinese and they're doing this gain of function research with American dollars. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's true. Whether that's the source of COVID-19 or not doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, because it's it's another cold. It's another virus that we're going to have to live with from right. now on. And like if we have to live with it, we should find ways to adjust and to cope with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the- making everyone panic and like rushing this experimental vaccine. Um, I, I just don't feel like those are good moves. I agree. I agree. I mean, and if anything, like the whole panic. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Let's stress people out to lower their immune systems. Great. Right. You know, and, and, and again, and what, what's their recommendation? Yeah. Close the gyms because they're non-essential. Wait a minute, motherfucker. I'm pretty sure the more muscle mass you have, the better chances you've got, you know, of, of surviving a severe infection of any kind or a severe, you know, disease, whatever. At least lower body fat content, which that, that might even be a controversial thing to say. Well, 
you but know, it's scientifically true. It, 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 it is. It is a. It, it's a fact. And I've brought this up also throughout this whole damn thing that the number one indicator of risk of, of, of contracting COVID was having a BMI higher than 30%, you know, of having, you know, body fat, you know, higher than 30%. So, oh yeah, close the fucking gyms, you know, <laughs> like I, nuts. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, anyway, so yeah, yeah, here's this book. Here's steps you can take for next time. And it's a pretty good bet there's going to be a next time. Yeah, because nobody's shutting down factory farms. Nope. Nobody's stopping the, the trade of animals at wet markets. Right. Right. Like, exactly. Those are the best things that we could do to slow the, the spread of new diseases or yeah. even the creation of new diseases. Yeah. And that's not happening. Right. But that's. If the <laughs> government did this, it would make things so much easier. But the government's not going to do that. Right. Right. And I, I mean, you know, and just huh, we could talk about this whole the whole episode, but like just add on to the fact. So, OK, but people are like, well, yeah, but people are going to starve if you shut these things down. Whoa, 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 whoa. People are already starving. There is plenty of there's plenty of food on the planet right now to feed everybody multiple times over. Anybody in, in the food industry knows the issue is distribution. Okay. The problem is distribution. That's all there is to it. That's the problem. It's not that there isn't enough food. The problem is distribution. Here's the thing. Okay. (laughs) Like you can shut these, you know, farms. Like if your argument is that people are going to starve, no, the people are already starving. So you might as well just make sure they don't die from COVID or, or whatever avian, you know, flu that comes around and just shut these damn things down. You know what I mean? Like you're not solving anything by keeping them open. You're actually creating a second, potentially even larger problem than hunger. Yeah, you know, by obesity. Doing so. yeah, yeah, right. Obesity, because the food's shit anyway. Cardiovascular so, disease. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. Heart disease, which is the number one killer. COVID hasn't beaten that one. Uh, not even close. Heart I attack, mean, stroke, I mean, <laughs> hypertension. The flu is cancers. worse than COVID. But anyway, yeah, right. So, you know, you're not solving anything by saying, well, we got to keep these things open to, f- to feed people because you're not feeding people anyway, because you haven't solved the real problem, which, which is distribution. So they, they can just go fuck themselves with their arguments as to why they, you know, they don't they don't want to take action against the source of the problem or one of the sources of the problem. Yeah. I, and this is a whole other issue in itself. Mm-hmm. But Gregor writes about this, too, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. But the meat industry makes so much money that they are able to lobby the government to such a degree that like the FDA includes meat in the food pyramid and there's this propaganda that like you won't be healthy if you stop eating meat. Right. And that's not true. I mean, we're living proof. We've been Sure. Well, I've been vegetarian for over a decade. Oh. You have been for the last few years. In in my opinion, the greatest of all time, Bill Pearl, was a vegetarian. No, that 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 man looked like a Greek god walking around, and and and, li- <laughs> and I tell I, he might even still be alive. And if he is, he's got to be a hundred something. It, it, give me a break about that crap. That like, oh, you've got to eat meat. My Hebrew ass. But like, this is the reason that they're not going to shut down the factory farms is because right. the government makes so much money off of it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, no, you're, you're, you're totally right. Well, just too many uh, people make too much money okay, for they, anything to happen. Yes, so they make money off of it. 
But then, you know, like like a plant based diet, you can grow in your backyard. Exactly. And they you can't have, you they can't make money off of that. You've got That's power over that. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know if people remember these things called victory gardens that <laughs> yeah. sprung up in like World War Two era. Sure. People had control over their sources of food. Yes. And it was like a victory, you know? You yes. don't need to get the government food stamps because you have your own food. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen the memes go around even, you know, like grandma survived the Great Depression, you know, and because she grew her own shit and everything. It's like because she <laughs> had the skills. And it's like, yeah, exactly. You know, but anyway, oh, man, we could go forever. <laughs> but, right. Well, there's just so many issues that are addressed in this book. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a great book, How to Survive a Pandemic, Dr. Michael Greger. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, my highest recommendation as well as How Not to Die and How Not to Diet. Those are both uh, also phenomenal books. Uh, and Carbophobia might just really, I mean, because look, and I was a part of it. Like in the libertarian movement, like low carb paleo diet was like part, it, it was. It was everywhere. Well, it, it was like a pillar. Yeah. It, it was it was uh, uh, an axiom, dare I say, of of the movement. And <laughs> like, if you drew a Venn diagram of right. libertarians and and paleo, they would be pretty much overlapping. Yeah, no, be right, like 2 right. Percent on the edge. Yeah, I, I mean the I don't know the the blue and the red circle would just turn purple instantly. So <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, and and oh, it's a shocking, shocking book. So anyway, that one you can't find on Audible though. Um, but uh, yeah, so check out Dr. Greger's books. Anyway, I think we should take a break. And then we've got some stories to get into that are also all about longevity, uh, ultimately, and perhaps about wiping out entire species. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> the big 29, that's all I'm going to say uh, for now. <laughs> so we'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside, and not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. And we are back. Uh, wow. <laughs> After a hell of an opening hour. Um, all of those books, if anyone wants to check them out, are linked to in the show notes. Those links are not affiliate links for Sovereign Tech whatsoever, unlike the modern uh, uh, mainstream or the modern media industry, modern journalism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, 
you know, I don't just talk about things to make a cut off of it. Quite the opposite. I make sure that, you know, I'm not making a cut off of it. Ellen and I just talk about it because we think it's pretty fucking interesting. So, (laughs) and that's all there is to it. We're just trying to help you be a better version of yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Sovereign tech is all about enhanced human performance. Uh, Perhaps minus the tech, even though tech is in the name, but we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) Not right now. Anyway, let's get into uh, something else that we found interesting. And you, Ellen recently got a, your one of, or it wasn't the latest. Now it's not the latest, but at the time it was the latest issue of uh, popular mechanics. That's right. I'm a recent subscriber. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think this is like the May, June um, issue. Right. Yes. For 2021. So, and it does involve some tech. They use tech to make this uh, determination. Sure. That we find about out about in the story, which has to do with mass extinction events. Right now. So the title of it, um, and, and this is not online yet. So this is a story that you can only get in the magazine. Um, and it's, uh Oh, new research on extinctions uh, shows life doesn't always find a way. Um, which of course is a tagline off of Jurassic park, which is pointing at a lot of what this story really talks about, which is the dinosaurs. Um, life finds a way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the immortal line by Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Ian Malcolm there. Uh, so do you want, do you want to like read this or do you want to talk about it? I think we should just talk about it. We can touch on the major points, but yeah. if anybody really wants to read the article, they can, you know, either subscribe or wait till it shows up online. Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, I'll, I'll be a nice guy and say, you could also go to, sorry, give me one second. That is a down my magas. So D O W N M A G A Z dot net and have a good time finding all kinds of magazines for free, but don't mean to take any <laughs> money away from uh, popular mechanics. Anyway, <laughs> let's, Let's roll. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, good information there. Oh, I, I, I go to that site every day. It's part of my rounds. You know, like <laughs> I, I have a series of websites that I go to where like, okay, what free shit can I get today? <laughs> wow, you should do an episode about your uh, daily rounds at some point. I should. I just, I won't link to them. I'll say them. I won't link to them in the show notes because then... You know, I, I don't want, I don't want eyes on them in that way, right, like right. the wrong eyes, you know, anyway, but I'll say them out loud. Go for it. Let, tell me about this. I mean, basically this story is getting into, Hey, guess what? There aren't just five extinction events. There's actually like 29. Yeah. And the way that life evolves is actually far less predictable than what we've been taught to believe. Sure. So give me the story. All right, so uh, this story is based on research that was done by Jennifer Hoyle Cuthill, PhD, a data scientist at the University of Essex in England. Yep. And what they did was they used a computer algorithm, um, and they basically fed this algorithm information about the number of species alive at different time periods throughout history you know, dating back millions and millions of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what this computer algorithm was able to find was that in addition to the big five extinction events, there were there were actually like tons more. 
And that's where this idea of the big 29 comes from, is that there are 29 total extinction events. Um, But what's even more interesting is that after each one of these extinction events, based on traditional knowledge, people might think that there would be an explosion of life or what they call radiation events. So these radiation events are, you know, explosions of numbers of species. Um, So according to traditional knowledge, after each extinction, there should be like room in the ecosystem for Mm -hmm. a bunch of new species, at least like almost equally as many as there was previously. Right. Um, At least that's how I've been taught is that like there's certain niches in each environment, in each ecosystem and for every niche that is left vacant, eventually something comes in to fill that sure, one it's way the old, or another. It's the old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But what they found with this algorithm was that that's not always the case. And in fact, there's even evidence that points towards this in our current world if we're just paying attention enough to see it. For example, there are certain invasive species that can completely wipe out native habitats mm-hmm. um, just simply by sheer force. They take over and there's no room for native plants to grow. So it's not a radiation event. It's just this natural invasion. Right. It's, yeah. it's kind of expressing this concept of like, just because there is something able to fill that niche, there, mm-hmm. there could be one species able to fill a niche that maybe like five or 10 other species could do the, the equal niche feeling filling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So like there, there's also fish species where like the lionfish, like you were talking about Lexington earlier. Yes. Yeah. They could just kill off everything that lives around yeah, they, them. Yeah, right. So they could fill like a niche of 10 other fish mm-hmm. or 20. Yeah. You know, they're taking up the environment. Um, so maybe they're eliminating these s- spaces or like the food supply, or maybe they're just apex predators mm-hmm. and they don't allow room for these other species to flourish. So sure. it's not always true that there's this linear relationship between extinction and new species evolving. Um, like the traditional knowledge would say like, oh, well, if there's this invasive species that's taking over and killing off all the native uh, plants or animals, then eventually they've got to evolve to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. So how would this say, say in the scenario of the Elvarez hypothesis, right? Where the dinosaurs, you know, asteroid hits dinosaurs of a certain period get wiped out. Um what would this say to that? Well, it would say that just because all of those dinosaurs were wiped out, say like 95% of the species on the planet goes extinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that an equal number of species are going to evolve. So like the other part of this is that sometimes there are explosions in the number of species right. that are not related at all to extinction events like the cambrian explosion exactly the cambrian explosion is the best example Mm -hmm. um you know things just came to evolve 
you know, tons, no, hundreds of new species evolved in a short period of time. And it had nothing to do with, you know, a bunch of things dying off. Right. It just happened. Not exactly in relationship, in relation to anything else. So, I mean, would, say, Turok be an extinction event? Like, Native American appearing in the past with alien weaponry, wiping out raptors <laughs> carrying chain guns. Uh, <laughs> like... I mean, is he, is he, would he be part of the big 29? No, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way to make it through the whole game is by killing off all the, you have to wipe out all the dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. And all the triceratops. Too. <laughs> Sorry. Ellen's been playing way too much Turok lately. And so <laughs> it came to mind. Uh, yeah. So, well, he, here's, here's what I'm wondering. Like, so is the suggestion that, these extinction extinction events, because you know the popular notion again is that there's been five big ones, right? Which this is saying is not true. There's actually twenty nine, right? Okay, um, but is is would you say part of the suggestion is that these extinction events aren't inherently bad? Um, I suppose uh, I didn't really get that okay. from the story. Okay, I think I think. What it's saying is that life is far less predictable than we previously thought mm -hmm. and that we can never tell when there's going to be an explosion of life or when there's going to be an extinction. Right. I mean, sometimes these extinctions happen like relatively slowly, mm -hmm. um, but then sometimes they happen by a, a catastrophic event. Yeah. Um, where I guess the same thing could be true for radiation events. Where they could, you know, kind of gain momentum as time goes on, but they could also just happen in one single explosion. And whether it that radiation event is related to extinction or not, you know, we we can't really predict that. Yeah. So because I'm I'm rem yeah. So, so I'm sometimes extinction events aren't bad, but sometimes they are. Sure. Really bad. Sure. <laughs> Uh, I mean, wiping out the dinosaurs, yikes. You know, whether it was Turok or an asteroid, I mean, you know. <laughs> right. And eventually there were animals that came to take the place of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were like, uh, what, the giant herbivores that roamed yeah. North America, you know, 10,000 years ago. Well, and the dinosaurs evolved into their own other things. Right. You know, they birds, became birds. Tronodon, so on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Tronodon that still travels space to this day. Uh, maybe. No. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what really killed the dinosaurs, right? Lack of a space program. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, except for the tronodons. Except they, for the tronodons. They got the, away. The bipedal tronodon got away. Uh, and <laughs> There's a Star Trek episode about that. That's true. Well, that that was, well, I forget which ones they said did it. Anyway, that was a great episode. Or Well, it's it, it's an interesting episode. We'll put it that was way. Was it Voyager? Yeah. Chakotay yeah. is mm -hmm. on trial. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a mess. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, so I'm, while I'm thinking of this book, there's this really, really popular book. Uh, I used it as toilet paper back in the day. Um, it was called uh, like The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. And in this, she's making this big case that, oh, there is we're in the middle of a man-made man uh, extinction event, you know, like of the scale that we're, you know, of the big five, you know. 
where everything's going to get wiped out. Now, all of her, this, this whole book is making this argument from a predictive model. And I kind of feel like reading this because I read this too. I'm reading this and I'm like, well, you can't predict this shit. You know, I, I mean, even like the man-made one. No, like, like you have no idea because, because her argument is, is that so as I remember it. So by the end of the 21st century, we're going to lose anywhere between 20 to 50% of flora and fauna species on the planet. But this, you know, this research is suggesting, oh, no, no, you have no fucking idea, you know, like, like when there could be another explosion of life to say nothing of an extinction. And so actually by the end of the 21st century, even under present trajectory, as much as I would say civilization's present trajectory is horrible and it is, uh, we could actually be up 20 to 50%. Well, what do you think? I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think evolution. So here's the, here's the other thing. Evolution mm-hmm. is not a linear process either. Yeah. So like humans could still be evolving, mm-hmm. uh, just like moths are still evolving, mm-hmm. except moths can evolve from white to brown in months or right. years. Right. Whereas humans, you know, we still have appendixes and pinky toes and why? Yeah. You know, I mean, those might be evolving away, but it's going to take millions of years for us to achieve that. So, mm-hmm. so evolution plays out at different speeds for different species. Yes. But it's far easier and far much, it's, it's a much quicker process to make a species extinct than it is to make a species evolve, especially giving birth to a whole new species. I mean, in, I can't even like count the number of species that have gone extinct over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. And sure, humans are a huge part of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like at the rate at which we're doing deforestation and replacing like native plants and native animals with these easy to grow, easy to farm ones. Sure. We're like reducing biodiversity incredibly. Right. And we're trampling on ecosystems around the world, placing a huge demand on the ones that already exist because Mm -hmm. we're taking up so many resources and we're not replacing them. Mm -hmm. So like the, the rate at which humans are affecting the extinction of species I think is going to far outpace any evolution of a new species because that while, while I can say in regards to this article that it, it happens relatively quickly. Yeah. Like a mass radiation event happens yeah. really quickly. Yeah. We're talking about geological time scales. You know, that's hundreds of thousands of years. Sure. I mean, we're talking about a big 29 inside of what the earth's 4 billion year history. Exactly. Yeah. Which isn't that many, you know, in, in <laughs> that many a, billion. <laughs> well, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like that's just on that timeline, like that, the big 29 is, I mean, that's really spread out, you know? Right. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Because these happen, these, at least the big five extinction events, mm-hmm. they happen like 120 million years apart from each other. Right. That's a really long time. I mean, yeah. like we can't even conceive how long that is. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, cause I'm, I'm really on board with scientists understanding like the, you know, because sure, a few hundred years ago, extinction events, like, like in, in the 1700s, nobody even thought extinction events happened, you know, like that, that wasn't even a thing. And now we're getting to understand it a little bit better. I feel like the takeaway for me from this, it's absolutely fascinating for one, but also like this shit's all completely out of control. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. And that's actually the point I yeah. think is that we have no control. We have no idea of how to even conceive of this. Right. And I think when I mentioned this article to you, you brought up something that we saw uh, in a documentary all watched over by machines of loving grace. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there was a study done in that documentary where, mm -hmm. um, you know, based on this hypothesis that there is a balance in every ecosystem. Right. And that, like, for everything, for every, like, plant and animal that a certain animal will eat, there's there's going to be, like, an equal number of prey born to make up for the loss in the population, or there's going to be an equal number of plants that grow in the place of the one that was eaten. Yeah. And um, what they found over this, which they basically like tracked animals and counted everything, took note of what species, how many, like what this animal was eating over a period of what months. Yes. And what they found after tracking the population of all of these different species was that there is no order. Yeah. There's there no is system. no balance. Right. There is no balance. It's, it's a chaotic rise and fall of population levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I have a real problem with prediction models in general, uh, which is also why I thought that six extinction book was, was just shit. Like, Okay. Yep. There's bad things happening, but for you to say somehow you have any fucking clue what's happening on this, on that large of a scale, you know, give me a break. Uh, but yeah, I think it is fair to say that humans are, you know, causing or bringing into effect a lot of extinction. Sure. And whether or not there's going to be animals to replace the ones that are going extinct. I mean, that's up for debate. I would say it's happening too quickly for anything to evolve into its place. But then again, I'm just now saying that we have no way of predicting. So Right, right. It's just I mean, out of control. It, right. Yeah, there is no system to this. It's out of control. And that which survives is that which can adapt, you know. Uh, well, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like negative because this is exciting, you know, to discover this and to figure this out. And because like now you have a new trail throughout the history of Earth, you know, to, to follow. Um, and to pay attention to, you know, but it overall just leads to a greater understanding of, of you know, yeah, these extinction events occur, but I, I, yeah, I mean, overall, I just love that message that look, we're, we're completely out of control. Like or all of this, how all this works is completely out of control. Stop trying to, uh, be a watchmaker about it or invent one, you know, and <laughs> like, that's, that's my takeaway. What do you got? Yeah, no, I agree because they're, there is no way to predict when an explosion will happen or an extinction. I mean, except for the ones that we can directly see we're causing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's no order to this. There's, yeah. It's just this beautiful chaos that's a, playing out over time. It's a beautiful mess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Anything else you want to add on this? 
Um, well, I felt like it really changed my perspective on like how life works over that. time. So I think this is definitely an article that I would recommend anyone read if they're curious. Sure. It's not very long. It's only two pages. Right. So, okay. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, do you want to move on to something else? Yeah. We've still got a few others to cover. Yeah. We've got a couple other stories, uh, at least here to, to get into. So, uh, yeah, you know, let's go to, because let's say when, uh, a certain human individual life is extinguished, um, why, why don't we talk about William Shatner? <laughs> yeah. You know, I ask myself that question almost every moment of every day. Why don't we talk about William Shatner? <laughs> Exactly. While he's here, for fuck's sake, let's talk about him. Uh, so <laughs> we love you, Will. Yes, I, I yeah, I I really really do. Um, so <laughs> I might even have just had a William Shatner Funko Pop appear today. But anyway, uh, so this was news back in like March of this year, March of 2021, and I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Uh, and what I was hinting at earlier about you know, we were talking about Paul Walker and using like a holographic CGI version, whatever, uh, of the character or, you know, one of his characters say in the fast and furious movies or something. Um, this is the story that I was hinting at in, in so doing. And he, well, I'll just read the headline I'm reading from comicbook.com, which by the way is owned by CBS, CBS owned Star Trek moving along. William Shatner is having his personality copied into an AI. Uh, it's a very, very short little article here. I want to read it and that I want to get into this, this idea of, okay, well, if people are going to die, can we somehow transpose their personality into a chatbot? Well, let's do it. As Star Trek star William Shatner turns 90, this terrifies me. <laughs> like, I do not sleep well thinking that William Shatter might not make it, you know, the next day. But anyway, uh, as he turns 90, he's signing up as a brand ambassador for Storyfile, a company focused on artificial intelligence. Shatter will become the first person to use a new program called Storyfile Life to create, quote, an AI powered interactive conversational video so family and friends can interact with him for years to come. End quote. Shatner's StoryFile profile, which uses AI in the company's proprietary technology Conversa, will be made available for the public to interact with on internet-connected devices in May. I've looked for this. Maybe I missed it somehow. Anyway, continuing on. Quote, this is for all my children and all my children's children and all my children's loved ones and all the loved ones of the loved ones. End quote. Shatner said in a press release, quote, that's my gift to you down through time end quote, which is very egotistical, but I expect nothing less from William Shatner and I love him for well, it. Well, to be <laughs> fair, he's got a lot to say. That's true. He did live. Um, ironically, people going to talk with his chatbot or video version of himself won't be living, but <laughs> or like, you know, getting outside and doing the amazing things that William Shatner did. But yes, he does have a lot to say. He's certainly a wise fellow uh, in many ways. Other times I hear him say something and I go cross-eyed, but 
Shatner uh, recording his StoryFile conversation at the StoryFile studio in Los Angeles using the company's AI platform. Uh, you can watch a behind-the-scenes video. Anyway, it's in the show notes. Uh, quote, William Shatner is going where no one has gone before, end quote, said StoryFile co-founder and CEO Heather Myo-Smith. Uh, quote, generations in the future will be able to have a conversation with him, not an avatar, not a deep fake, but with the real William Shatner answering their questions about his life and work. This changes the trajectory of the future of how we experience life today and how we share these those lessons and stories for generations to come, end quote. Storyfile Life launches in June, blah, blah, blah. Uh, according to the company, the program brings a new type of interactive storytelling that will change how we remember, how we interact, how we share stories, how we teach future generations, and how we learn. The technology used in the program includes the patented artificially intelligent interactive memory system on Conversa using, I mean, there's so much fucking jargon here, using natural language processing and other technologies. Uh, boy. Quote, at StoryFile, we believe every person's story matters, end quote. No, that's not true. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, okay, let's talk about this. Okay, let's do it. A, you are not talking to William Shatner if you are talking to the StoryFile thing. Okay, you are talking to like, you, you are getting responses based on his canned responses that were video recorded, you know, and so on. You are not talking to William Shatner. This is not the real William Shatner. William Shatner recorded it, but that is not the real William Shatner. Uh, I don't even know if William Shatner knows who the real William Shatner is, but <laughs> that's besides the point. Yeah. I would see this a lot like watching a movie or documentary. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's like an interactive documentary. It's having an experience with a creation. Yes, right. This is not the person. No. And the story file, like making this sound like, and I am sure they would love nothing more than for you to essentially be addicted to their app. You know, and and I'm sure I wonder what the charge is like to continue to get access to whatever story file, you know, that you want, even of your loved ones, say. Um, and it's probably expensive to go through this process. I can only imagine. They even said like that you'd be able to set it up for holograms and, and everything else. Uh, mm. you know, there's real problems with this because. As tragic as any death is, you know, and, and, and I don't think we should have to deal with people dying. Like I wish everybody just lived forever, you know, or as long as they wanted to anyway. Uh, detachment is as much a part of the natural process of death as the death itself. This, in my opinion, as much as I never want to see William Shatner die, you know, if he did, you've got to deal with the detachment of the matter, you know, like, I, I mean, you, you, you have to accept that. And I mean, how many of us get weirded out when somebody dies and you still see their Facebook posts, you know, it, it's, it's very weird. It's very odd to experience that. Uh, because 
that, per, you know, you're supposed to basically live with the memories and your memories also coalesce, I think, in such a way, perhaps to idealize the person more to where they are remembered and important to you. And they are carried on with within you in the way that makes the most sense for you. And that's a natural and good thing in my opinion to have these and to even like, like promote these ideas of, well, no, you can talk to daddy Shatner forever. As long as you can pay the monthly subscription, uh, there, there, there's something so out of whack, uh, with that. I mean, what, what, what do you think? What do you think Ellen to what I'm saying? Well, I just want to say, first of all, what's not wrong with this is that he's agreeing to do this before he died. Yep. You know, he, he, he's going into this knowing exactly what he's doing. Great point, because that does make it a little more palatable. Yes. Like it's his choice to be used in this way. Right. Yeah. Whereas some people don't ever get that choice. Right. Like there was recently the Dio concerts where it was Dio as a hologram. Like Dio didn't fucking agree to that. I mean, you could right. argue maybe in some music contract that his music could be used in whatever way, but like his likeness and him pretending to be on stage. Oh, fuck. No. Anyway, go, go ahead. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, but I, I see this kind of as like family videos, mm -hmm. you know, you can hang on to family videos and watch them long after someone has passed away. Um, and sometimes those can bring you, you know, positive remembrances and, sure. you know, fill you with joy, but sometimes they can also make you sad because you feel like you're missing out on all of the good things that that person brought to your life. Like, my great-grandfather passed away recently, and he was, he was a really great storyteller. And I, he, he was 94 when he passed, yeah. so kind of similar to William Shatner's age. Um, I wish that I had his stories written down or recorded somewhere. Yeah. Because even my recollection of them, I could never recreate them the way that he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's the one that lived them. Mm -hmm. So only he can tell the story the way that it's meant to be. Right. Um, and I'll never even be able to capture his essence, you know, his humor, yeah. the, the facial expressions, um, you know, everything that he was able to add that I couldn't. Yeah. Um, so there's there's something to be said for having that sort of recording that is true to character. But then you have to ask, is that something that is even desirable? I mean, honestly, there's there's a lot of evidence to show that having that sort of um, memento that makes you look back onto the past mm -hmm. and, and think about the past and the people that you used to be close with that have gone away, mm -hmm. um, whether they died or they're just not part of your life anymore. That's not something beneficial for your mental health. Right. Um, this actually brings to mind something that I read recently uh, about a certain condition. I can't remember what it's called now, but people have this condition where they are not able to form images in their mind. Mm. It's really bizarre. Um, but like if you say to somebody, imagine a pink elephant, most people are able to do that. Yeah. There are a certain population of people, very small 
percentage of the population that can't call to their minds eye a picture. Right. Um, and these people actually, when they go through tragic losses, are uh, able to move on from them more quickly. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because they're not thinking back on all of the experiences with that person thinking like, oh, I'm, I miss them so much. I right. wish that was still part of my life. And, and that's what makes it easier for them to move on. And some people would say like that might be cold and heartless, but these people aren't cold and heartless. They still have emotions. Yeah. Uh, they're just more in the present. They're present focused. Mm-hmm. And you can say that like, that's probably what would lead to the best mental health outcomes for all of us mm-hmm. is to be present focused. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> and and this sort of technology is just, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like nostalgia. That's what it's all about. Yeah. it's See, and that's my, right. My concern is it's not letting us move on. It's not letting us look forward. It's not letting us let go. Um, and I mean, what, what really bothers me here? So like, it's, it's nice. Like, do I love being able to, um, watch documentaries with Leonard Nimoy in them? Yes. Do I love being able to read Harlan Ellison for the rest of my life, even though he's gone? Absolutely. As hard as it is to do now, I absolutely love being able to do that. Here's the thing. When I take in that content because it's one-sided. It's not conversational like Conversa, you know, this technology, like, like Storyfile. I get out of it the meaning that I need, you know, consciously or unconsciously, because it's not interactive. It's there. I can experience it at my pace, at my time, my call, you know, and how I want to, and I can take from it what I need. And sometimes that can be colored based upon what I remember of the person, like a memory I have with the person, um, you know, and then that turns into something, a new thought maybe, or a fond memory or whatever. And all, all that's grand and dandy. Here's the problem with this is that you are going to be able to ask, in this case, William Shatner, a question. The AI is then going to compute whether or not, okay, well, what did William Shatner record with us that makes the most sense based upon this question? But in a sense, isn't that what you do when you search something on Google? Like when you're thinking, okay, I want to read or I want to watch this video of Harlan Ellison where he said this certain thing. And then you look it up in Google and Google gives you the results and then you can click on that. It's a fine line, but I don't think it's the same thing. That's what I'm saying is that I am choosing what I consider to be relevant to my desires. This is the AI choosing what I think is relevant. And the problem there is that I can, I mean, and and granted anybody that asks the question and if, 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 you know, story file Shatner, the hologram comes out with gibberish, then you don't have to necessarily accept it either. Um, But, you know, when you are, going on a, like say a journey of exploring memories of someone who's long past or something along those lines. Um, that's a very personal thing to do. And I don't think there's any algorithm that should get in the way of the matter. Um, like See, Google, I mean, cause I accept like the, the search you just suggested, I accept that Google and YouTube 
are woefully inadequate at finding the information that I'm looking for. And they are. For the average person, it probably works, but that's because the average person's a moron, right? And so Google is smarter than they are. But, you know, for somebody who's intelligent, Google sucks. Every ad that it recommends me, it recommends to me is terrible, you know, and that's, that kind of speaks to my concern here is that if I wanted to ask an intelligent question of one of these story files, the algorithm sucks and it's going to give me a shitty answer. And, and it, it, dare I say it sours the milk of, of past knowledge that I could glean from such a person. So do you think it would ultimately be better if he just recorded a series of videos? Yes, absolutely. Because the other part to that is that I could analyze those videos and I could read into them even what he wanted to present. Again, this isn't, yeah, he agreed to it. Great. But this isn't what he, it's you're not going to get the information the way he wanted it presented. It's how the AI thinks what you want, what it thinks is the best response, you know, as to where we can watch, say like you suddenly say, uh, pick a family member. Okay. Um, I don't say an ant. All right. And it, it's anybody just, just, just somebody's aunt. Okay. You can watch home videos of her. And, and this has actually happened with me where I've watched home videos of actually an aunt of mine, for example. Uh, I'll just say it. my, never mind. I'll, I'll say my, my aunt Nancy. I don't have an aunt Nancy, but my aunt Nancy, I see her in these videos or I see a bunch of videos and I'm like, wait a minute. Why is Aunt Nancy only in like two out of like 20 of these videos? Later on in life, I learned that my Aunt Nancy was having an affair. Okay. With somebody and that she didn't want to be seen because all the adults in the family were giving her the cold shoulder. Right. But now because the information that I have was static, I can, I can take that new information and bring it to, you know, bring it to this, bring it to these videos. And now these, I see these videos in a wholly new way because of the new information that I have, but that's because it's static info. There's no algorithm feeding it to me or thinking that this is what I need to know. Right. And so this idea of like interactive, um, of, of an interactive process after somebody dies and that that's like a way to know the person. I don't buy it. Like I, I, I don't, AI should have, have no business in basically in my memories of, of, you know, those that have passed. So it just, yeah, I, I just, I see this as doing far more harm than good because it doesn't allow you to let go. I think for a lot of people, it won't allow them to, uh, I could see people getting absolutely addicted to these things. Uh, and, um, you know, like it, it doesn't give you what you can get out of the information. It gives you what it thinks you want. It's almost like looking glass self theory, but in this case for the hologram, but tell me, sorry, tell me what you think. Oh, I, I'm just listening to what you're saying. I mean, it sounds like the algorithm is adding like this creepy outside element. That's really not even human. Right. So you can't say that it's like part of the person or that it's going to add to the realness of the person. Yeah. It might add to the appearance of realness, but it's certainly not going to contribute anything to their natural communication style. Right. Yeah. It's an attempt, but it's piss poor, you know, 
I, that, I mean, and that's part of it too, is I feel like this is really a piss poor representation of a person. And, and we don't need a better one is what you're arguing. Oh yeah, no, we don't. You're right. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's just going to make matters worse, you know, for me, like, and, and, and this, this whole notion, and, and it's not just this company, there's lots of companies getting into this and we already have the issue, you know, like say in, in China where Microsoft has, uh, was it or I'm trying to remember the name of the chatbot. People are falling in love with these chatbots. They're dating these chatbots and they fucking brag about it. And it's like, whoa, baby, you know? <laughs> yeah, this has been going on actually for the past like 20, 30 years. Yeah. Ever since uh, chatbots were invented, really. Right. Yeah. And n- n- none of this is human, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not being a, an, old, an old fuddy-duddy, you know, in, in saying this. I'm not, I'm, I'm actually, absolutely, I, I am not... Uh, uh, I don't object to change, you know, uh, this is not change. This is somebody wanting to make a buck off of the dead. And I've got a, that. I also have a real problem with, you know? Yeah, of course. And, and maybe, you know what you could say, well, but I bet Shatner's estate, you know, his family could make money off of this in perpetuity because you can buy the Shatner bot for three ninety nine, you know, for the rest of time or whatever. And, you know, if that's offering his family some security, yeah. Okay. But at the same time, where is the line drawn that these people aren't grave robbers other than the people that died agreed to it? I, I just, I, I don't like it. <laughs> what do you got? Yeah, I don't like it either. I mean, I prefer people get rich and famous off of their own merits and not mm-hmm. just the people that they're related to. I actually mm-hmm. think that that's really um, cheap and makes me not like the person at all when they just ride on the fame of their relatives. Yeah. But um, I think what what I'm getting from this is that, like, you don't want any AI at all involved in keeping somebody alive into perpetuity. Correct. And maybe there's an implication there that people who do want this or even people who become, like, in love or addicted to or feel the the urge to have a relationship with some sort of AI, um, you know, maybe there's something that's not right with their relationships with real people. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think there's, I mean, if traumas are a thing, there's, there's traumas splattered all over this whole idea. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. So, so that's what you're saying is that we need to focus more on our relationships with real people. Yes. And not so much on AI. Yeah. Uh, focus on the present. Like you were saying, you know, um, let, let, let the dead go, you know, or at least, uh, uh, integrate the fact that the person died, you know, in the way that is a healthy way, you know, for humans to, you know, that that's not addictive. Uh, you know, for, for people, I mean, and look, because this happens without chatbots, right? How many people just won't let go and move on in life from say their husband or wife dying? Oh yeah. It could be like a box of notes that you wrote back and forth to each other or a picture book. 
Sure. And, and we all instantly tell people like, you know, and suddenly like the guy will be not shaving anymore and he'll quit his job. And he's just like, like his life's falling apart and you feel terrible for him. But what do you say to him? You say, no, you've got to move on. You know, like you can hold them in your heart forever, but like, you've got to move on and you've got to live. And that's what they'd want you to do, you know? And, and I just feel like this is, this is, this is antithetical to that, to that advice that we've always known, you know, even in, uh, yeah, just, it it doesn't work again. Shanner can do what he wants, whatever. Okay. Uh, But boy, I, I worry where this can go, where people will, will take this. Um, Yeah. Because this could go into other like darker places too, because there's the technology now where like you get enough video and audio of somebody, you can, synthesize them doing things that they never actually did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a big problem as well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's to the point now, I think you have to put like in your will, uh, you're not allowed to fucking replicate me. You know, you're like, you're, you're not allowed to, I mean, that's, that's madness that you, that you have to do that. But it, it, and of course, what court is going to hold up to that even, you know, so what's the point other than you could say, uh, outright. No, I don't want like, how great would it be if Paul Walker said, do not fucking CGI me, you know, <laughs> like in, in, in a movie. Right. And I want to be respected for, you know, the, what I brought on screen, everything else is, is, is horseshit. And you know, how powerful that would have been, you know, to, to make that statement. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting. It makes me think of, um, cloning. Like, mm-hmm. the only reason that people don't write in their wills, like, don't clone me, I don't want to be cloned, is because it's not legal. Right. Like, if, right. It, if it was, I mean, the reason that it's not legal, there's no scientific reason why, like, we don't clone people or, well, we do clone animals. Mm-hmm. People clone their pets. Yes. Because, you know, they want to have their beloved pet around forever. Yeah. Why don't we do it to humans? Because there's just this feeling that everybody has that it's not right to <laughs> to bring someone back from the dead, to have them live a whole second life. It's exactly biologically the same person. Well, yeah, to- but, like people just can't get a grasp on that idea. Like it, it's just so eerie and weird and unnatural that people don't want it to happen. And there's. No good philosophical argument. There's no good logical or scientific argument why we don't do it. It's just that we feel that it's wrong, so we don't do it. And it's banned worldwide. Yeah. See, here's the thing. Like, it's, but it's not. Like, I, I get it that the person can be, like, you might even be able to map to the last neuron, you know, that it was the same, that it's the same person. I You'd have to get, but we're not to that point where like you get the same, uh, you know, neural connection to every part of the body. Like when you clone somebody, like it's like, you're not cloning an exact version of the body. Well, no, they wouldn't have the same same experiences. experiences. Exactly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We do that to each other all the time. (laughs) So, so it's not the same person, right? Yeah. Genetically it is the same person, but experientially it's not. Right. And, I feel like this AI representation of a person is kind of like a a synthetic 
attempt at cloning. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, that that's fair, but... I just don't understand why it is that this is acceptable, but, like, actually cloning somebody isn't. Sure. That's a great question, you know, a great question to ask. Um, I mean, cloning gets into our... Obviously, the, the reasons are it gets into playing God, right? Uh, and that's why you have a lot of people, I mean, because I, I hear what you're saying, cloning a body, like what's, so what, you know? Right. And no one's going to, no one's going to pretend that that's Brian Sovereign, if it's a clone of me, right? Like you're going to give it another name. It's oh, going to be a different Oh, some people might person. pretend that. Well, some people might, that, that's, that's very true. Okay. Uh, but you know, that's not Trip Tucker the third, that's <laughs> someone else, <laughs> right? <laughs> And treat them like that. Uh, I mean, boy, that gets into a whole thing. Like, what memories are mine and what are trips, right? You, oh, you gosh. Remember that episode yeah, of that was a very strange episode. Yeah, but that's science fiction at its best, exploring the very issue that we're talking about. You know, and, and but that gets to it, is that, you know, and then when it's not, the, that's not William Shatter. And unless that's made abundantly clear that that's not William Shatter, that is a performance that he made, but they're trying to blur the lines of that, that it is William Shatner. It's not just a performance. No, it's just a performance, you know, and your reason for it not being just a performance is that, well, because it's AI backed horseshit, you know, like, like no way that's still just a performance. And the AI is only muddling things and making things worse. And that's where you run into the problem of wait, what's William Shatner and what's the AI, you know, and, and, not not good. Right. Because the way that humans decide on how to respond to something is by using their own intelligence. And yes. this is just an artificial recreation of, or at least it's supposed to be some facsimile of that. Yeah. 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 So this is just technology going in a very ugly direction. There's no pot, in my opinion, there's no positives to this. And it's not new. It's not a new idea. Like you said, it's been being worked on or, you know, the concept's been around for decades. Um, we just, we, we've got to get over that and, and understand that, okay, recreations of a person are nothing less. They are a recreation. They are not the person. And it then comes to the debate, is the recreation an insult to the person's memory, to the person, to who the person was? Um, or what is it? Yeah, I also wonder, like, is this going to stay the same um, AI mm -hmm. over time, or are they going to, like, continue tweaking it as time goes on? I want to see that contract that William Shatner signed. You know, like, what does that allow for? Does that allow for the latest version of Conversa? You know, that can enhance the experience. And then, I mean, fuck. I mean, here's here's a historical example. It's not even necessarily interactive. Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most brilliant minds humanity's ever seen, in my opinion. Uh, and if if I thought philosophers were a good thing, he'd probably be about the top of the list. You know, like him and Max Stirner sitting pretty close, even though Max Stirner would consider himself an anti-philosopher, I'm sure. Friedrich Nietzsche has been, I mean, like when you think Friedrich Nietzsche, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And it's okay to be honest about this. <laughs> Uh, Say the N-word. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that N-word. I mean the other one with that N-A. 
Uh, I think of the Ubermensch. Yeah. Okay. So when people think Ubermensch, what's the first thing they think? Uh, Nazis. N- n- well, I wasn't going to say that because okay. I don't connect Nazi with with Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay, but most people do. Okay, right. sorry, I answered no, that one no, wrong. No, 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 you're great. You're great. You're <laughs> wonderful. And you're brilliant. And and you actually have Nietzsche's books on, like, uh, you have some on your shelf. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're brilliant. Okay. Thank you. I, I, not, <laughs> Thus spoke Zarathustra. Right. Okay, here's the thing, <laughs> is that when people think Nietzsche, you're probably right. Ubermensch is probably the first thing they think of. But when they think Ubermensch, they think Nazis. Okay, here's the, here's the deal, is that- The, the will so, to power? Is right. that okay. what we're talking about here? Well, there's a lot of, there, there are books, here's- Here's the thing, is that the reason there's this association of the concept of the Ubermensch with the Nazis is that it's not because Nietzsche said anything like that. Not like Nietzsche would support the Nazis. In fact, Nietzsche was incredibly gracious towards the Jews. Uh, Beautiful things to say about them. Nietzsche would have never supported the Nazis. His sister, on the other hand, would absolutely take his name while he's nuts or even dead and say these are his posthumous works, and she would write Nazi propaganda in his name. That bitch. Right. Fuck yes. Okay. (laughs) But because of that, we have decades of people, and I know because I was around them, we have decades of people at least, if not hundreds of years. But at the very least, we have decades of people who won't even consider to read Nietzsche as much as helpful as it might be to them to get to some grander understanding of existence. Because they instantly think that Nietzsche was a fucking Nazi. No, his sister was. And that, and, and you see, this speaks to the problem is that, yeah, I mean, this was even, you know, before there was a computer around, really, or, well, computers as we understand them anyway, that all she had to do was say this was in his name and for centuries, the it would be said that, oh, yeah, Nietzsche or maybe not send however long, you know, for, for years and years and years and years. Oh yeah. No, Nietzsche. Absolutely. Ubermensch wipe out all the weaklings, you know, when he never fucking said that. And, and so, so this is, this is the issue that you run into, right? Is that, wait a minute. So if this is supposed to be like, this technology is supposed to be deeply meaningful to people into the future, what happens when the AI fucking changes? What, or, or again, when you ask a question and Shatner responds with whatever, you know, you run, I, how hard would it be to run into a situation of Nietzsche's sister where holy shit, suddenly Shatner's a Nazi, you know, which would be crazy because he's Jewish, but oh you, you get my point, right? <laughs> <laughs> what a twisted world that would be. I, yeah. did, I did not foresee that. Sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the problem with this stuff. You know, like you need to, you need to draw the line. He's like a one man evolution show. (laughs) (laughs) But you need to draw the line. When somebody's die, when somebody dies, that's it. That's the end. No, I'm sorry. As much as I'd love to know the ending to new Atlantis, we're not going to get the complete picture. Okay. You know, Francis Bacon wrote it and, and his assistant published it later. Hopefully he didn't add anything. (laughs) Right. So that's, we we've got to draw those lines because otherwise shit turns into a mess. Like, you know, the idea that half of what Nietzsche talks about, which is brilliant is Nazi propaganda. No, you know, because he threw the baby out with the bathwater when you should have just thrown out his sister. 
<laughs> I didn't know we'd go here, but <laughs> and it's getting late. But um, what do you got? You, you, you got anything more on this one? Yeah. Well, um, I feel like it's also important to to bring up. I mean, I know we mentioned it before, but mm-hmm. like, I think it's important for people to be able to let go and move on. Yes. And I don't know, having like AI that you can chat with via text is not helpful. Having AI that you can chat with via hologram, I think, is even worse because that's playing all sorts of tricks on your human biology, um, making you think that the person is still there when right. it's not. And it's it's really sad that people need this as a coping mechanism, yeah. or if they do. I think Shatner's intention is good in that he just wants to pass on his personal stories to people and make people feel like they're having an experience with him. Um, but yeah, unless people really know, like, he is dead, that's not him, then there's always going to be this sort of unhealthy attachment. Yeah. So it's something to be cognizant of. I think, um, you know, there's plenty of people, and I feel bad for them too, that have problems letting go and moving on. Mm-hmm. And I've even been there myself. Uh, but in the end, it's all you can do to to continue living on and being happy and having amazing life experiences that are worth telling. You know, having your own stories to pass down to your children. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess ultimately I just want to say that like, let your brain organize your memories because your, your brain will organize if you let it, you know, if you, if you, if you're approaching things in a healthy mental manner, your brain will organize memories in a way that is best for you. And anytime you have, you lose control of those memories, you know, uh, it's just, it's going to get in the way of that. And and it, it doesn't allow us, you know, because I can think of people like that did really horrible shit in like the last five minutes of their life. And they should be remembered for what they were, not for what they did at the end. You know, in my opinion, uh, all friends, even when friends, when friendships go sour, friends should be remembered for what they were, you know? And, and, and I just, I don't, yeah, I, I don't dig this. Anything getting in the way of my brain and how it wants to remember things and how it takes in the information. I don't dig it. So uh, I, I could keep going. <laughs> Should we move on? We can move on. I think uh, it's time for us to move on. Let's move on. You know, we're talking about moving on. Now it's time to move on. So we'll move on to an article. This was from a brilliant, and I mean that, uh, a brilliant listener. Uh, actually, this is also from Popular Mechanics of all things, <laughs> but it was shared in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group. Always great conversations and interesting stories and things getting shared in there. Uh, here's the headline. It's from July 6, 2021. So this is super fresh. Uh, the U.S. military ugh, is testing a pill that could delay aging. Hmm. So uh, by Caroline Delbert, um, I'll read the bullet points here. SOCOM, uh, which that's Special Operations Command, by the way, uh, how are you guys doing over there? <laughs> it's at SOCOM. <laughs> there may have been a time where I uh, I, 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 I took orders. Uh, anyway, so SOCOM uh, is investing more money in clinical trials of anti-aging compounds. The chemical in question would be a neuros or a neutro, a nutraceutical, sorry, nutraceutical for all cellular signs of age. 
It's not clear in what specific ways this is likely to help U.S. military personnel. Um, so those are the bullet points that they give at the top of the story here. Okay, uh, I'll read a little bit. Uh, SOCOM, the organization, blah, 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 that organizes America's special ops uh, forces, says it will soon start clinical trials of an anti-aging pill that could halt some naturally de uh, degenerative effects of aging. Quote, we have compiled or completed preclinical safety and dosing studies in anticipation of follow-on performance testing in fiscal year 2022, unquote, Navy Commander Tim Hawkins uh, told Breaking Defense. The pill involves what Hawkins called a human performance small molecule that will be fashioned into a nutraceutical form for both civilians and military personnel. So nutraceuticals are like supplements, right? These are right. things that do not fall under regulations. Like, no, they're like not a pharmaceutical. Right. They're not a pharmaceutical. Right. Exactly. They're like supplements, like you said. Mm -hmm. They're not regulated by the FDA. Right. So a small molecule is exactly what it sounds like, a molecule with low molecular weight. What do you got? I think you skipped a paragraph that's really important. Okay. Yeah, I can read what, what, uh, what Hawkins said there. Okay, I'll read that. Quote, these efforts are not about creating physical traits that don't already exist naturally. This is about enhancing the mission readiness of our forces by improving performance characteristics that typically decline with age. Essentially, we are working with leading industry partners and clinical research institutions to develop a nutraceutical in the form of a pill that is suitable for a variety of uses by both civilians and military members whose resulting benefits may include improved human performance like increased endurance uh, and faster recovery from injury. So the idea here is... You take a pill. This pill gives you faster recovery, potentially, uh, keeps your joints going, maybe gives you more energy. It combats the effects of aging. Exactly. In a general sense. Okay. So so that's, that's what they're pushing here. Uh, now, you know better than I, because, I mean, this is, in some ways, would, wouldn't you argue this is your field? This uh, is what you do? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean... Biopharmaceuticals is a little different because the molecules created are much larger. Mm -hmm. Nutraceuticals, uh, those are small molecules, which they do talk about in the article. I think you're just about to read on that. But basically, they're saying they're low molecular weight substances. Right. So so there's this molecule, uh, NAD+, plus, uh, which I'll let you say what NAD means. <laughs> yeah, um, I was thinking about like explaining it in layman's terms, but I think it would be better if I just read this little abstract from PubMed. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So it's titled NAD plus metabolism and its roles in cellular processes during aging. NAD plus, which is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, is a coenzyme for redox reactions, making it central to energy metabolism. It's also an essential cofactor for non-redox NAD plus dependent enzymes. Um, it goes on a little bit about some scientific lingo. Uh, it can directly influence many key cellular functions as well as indirectly influence them, <clears throat> excuse me, including metabolic pathways, DNA repair, chromatin remodeling, cellular senescence, and immune cell function. Okay. So these cellular processes and functions are critical for maintaining tissue and metabolic homeostasis for healthy aging. So is this to prevent cellular damage or is it to repair it? It's both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Um, essentially, it's 
So, so what PubMed is saying is that NAD plus mm -hmm. helps people to age in a healthy way. Okay. I mean, there it does say later on in that abstract that it's possible to reverse some signs of aging, mm -hmm. but I think it's important to understand that aging is such a complicated biological process yes. that there's no single nutraceutical that's going to stop it. Right. There's no Kremlin pill. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which was an idea in the Soviet Union that, hey, have our politicians take this pill, they'll live forever. Didn't happen, obviously. Uh, but but continue. Yeah. So anyway, um, as people age, they naturally slow down in their production of NAD+. Plus. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is why I think it's important for this military organization to provide to their operatives, or at least they believe it's important, because they want their operatives to have the same sharpness and the mm -hmm. same uh, energy levels as when they were, you know, 20 years younger or whatever. Okay. And, and NAD plus supplementing it could, you know... It could make you feel younger. It could make you behave younger, but it's not going to stop you from aging. This is, so my question to you is ultimately, does this work? But my question is, is this going to let you live to 150? I don't know. I mean, uh -huh. <laughs> I think it would be ludicrous for me to say that. Luda? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the Fast and Furious oh, review. Whoops. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be ludicrous for anyone to say that. Um, definitely yes or no. I mean, I think, again, that there's just too many factors involved in aging and that supplementing this one thing, like, it might make you live a few years longer, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's going to make anyone live until 150. I mean, it's possible. Again, and we don't even know anything about the dosages that they're giving to people. Right. So that could vary widely as well. I mean, it is going to clinical trial, which gives a little more confidence in it because they're not, it's not just going to be some, some other nutraceutical. It's not just some sub supplement that, well, our clinic, our clinic says this, but no, this is going to go through like, you know, the whole process. Um, right. It's going to go through several stages of testing correct. with larger and larger populations. And I think there's some $3 million that's already been spent on this. Uh, which is it, nothing in, you know, in regards to clinical trials, those can take, you know, many more millions of dollars yes. and up to 10 years yes, to do least. properly. Correct. Um, so, I mean, but do you see this as something like that there'd be a, a real appreciable benefit? Is there the potential for that in your opinion? Yes. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So I think there's a benefit at any point in time at increasing your NAD plus levels because, you know, it's going to help with cellular function on you know all these different levels it's going to influence you know your dna repair and metabolic activity i don't see why it wouldn't be a great thing for anyone to take so at the risk of being hyperbolic do you see this as having the potential like do you think this is going to be the best thing since creatine <laughs> I mean, because creatine is a great thing, right? Like that, that's one of those, you know, supplements that has had so much research done on it. I mean, it, it like, it's amazing, you know? Uh, so, I mean, you, you're hopeful for this. Like you think oh, this, yeah. this might be a great thing. I do. Okay. I think the more um, important question to ask, not just is NAD plus something that's going to slow down aging, mm -hmm. but 
how can we maintain or increase people's NAD plus production in their own bodies sure. naturally? Sure. Because that's part of senescence. That's part of aging mm -hmm. is, um, you know, slowly our body stops producing this. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's still not entirely understood is why, why do we stop producing it? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the classic line from Aubrey de Grey, right, is, you know, why do we even age? Like that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And there are reasons for cellular yes. senescence. Right. I mean, in effect, it's like when a cell dies, it's protecting the cells surrounding it mm -hmm. from, you know, reproducing damaged DNA mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, infecting them with something else. Mm -hmm. So there's there's kind of this protective mechanism in place. And mm. that's why cells die. Um, is that why we age? I, yeah, there's a lot that contributes to that. Yeah. Um, and it happens gradually over many, many years. So I think this is going to be one of the most difficult problems for science to solve mm -hmm. is like, how can we naturally increase this? But until we figure that out, I guess the easy solution is just pop a pill. So I'll ask you this, and it's okay if you don't have an answer. I have thoughts, but I'll ask you this. Why is the military interested in this? This isn't exactly <laughs> like people living isn't exactly the military business. I say that as a veteran. Oh, but it is. For, <laughs> for people who are inside the military? Mm. Are you kidding? Of course they would want stronger smarter more long-living operatives mm -hmm. i mean imagine somebody who's 40 years old who's been in the military for 20 years imagine how much they know imagine what they could do mm -hmm. especially if they were put in charge of a, a team or a platoon or whatever i mean like wouldn't you want that person to continue doing what they're doing for another 20 years so that when they're 60, they're still as sharp and energetic as they were when they were 30. Uh, see, you're hitting at it. I, I, I think that's how you sell it to, to, to the grunt. That's how you sell it to the military. Um, so you can be a great soldier for the next four decades. Yes. Yes. You are hitting exactly why I think that they're doing this. Um, I mean, I could... There's, there's a lot of directions you can go. There's never always one reason, but I think you're totally hitting it. Here's the thing. Doing 20 years in the military, if you live, is a sweet deal. It's oh, a yeah. sweet <laughs> deal because, man, you've got pension, health insurance, the whole score if you do 20 years. If you go in the military at 17, man, you're retiring at 37. And if you, you, know, if you live modestly, and very modestly, uh, you, you don't ever have to work again. Now, military hospitals are shit, and I don't recommend taking advantage of their health care. But in the in the general perspective, like it is expensive for the U.S. government to pay for all those retirees after 20 years. I think this whole thing is so that soldiers, their contracts and their, their ability to get retirement bonuses and their retirement pension and all that jazz isn't 20 years anymore. Now it's 40 years because now you as a soldier are good until you are 60, not just 40, which is the average 40 to 50. Okay. 
and now, or now you're good till you're 70 or now you're good until you're 80. And it's an economic play. $2.8 million or $3 million to, to fund this research. Oh, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the, you know, the socialist programs that you pay for, for, you know, for, for retired military, for veterans. Um, so I, Go ahead. Yeah, I would. I mean, I agree. I was also kind of thinking along the lines of, um, you know, the amount of experience that a single person that lives that long in the military could gain. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it would save a lot in training new people to go into the military. But in addition to that, you would be gaining like all of this this wealth of knowledge in a single person mm-hmm. that could continue serving the military because you know, they're loyal, you know, they're going to do a good job mm-hmm. and you get to hang on to them for another 20 years. Yeah. I, I hear that. And I kind of feel like this is going to be given to like kind of the elites in the military, you know, the people who were calling the shots. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And and like there would be smart generals and smart commanders would would ask for that. I want intelligent people, you know, or, or like healthy people on my on my line, experienced people on my front lines or doing whatever, you know, like I like I. But most in my experience um, and to make the sovereign tech position totally clear in case somebody's new on this, like militaries are unethical across the board. There's no argument you know, for them. Um, and I say that as somebody who's in the U S army for years. And I don't appreciate being called a civilian. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Don't put me in a box like that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but (laughs) like, like they're, they they don't, most commanders have no interest. They, they, they think, they think everybody, at least in the army, they think everybody in the MOS basically from one to about 30 in those jobs uh, are idiots, you know? Yeah, I mean, of course. Uh, like, I mean, they even take a test for it. You know, the ASVAB is all about it. So like, they're not really interested in that. And overall, there are commanding officers. There are COs who absolutely are about that. There are COs who are, if we wanted to buy into their paradigm, who are intelligent, real warriors that would say, don't give me a single drafts person. I don't want anybody who draft who's drafted because they don't want to be here. So get them the fuck out of my platoon, you know, and, and that's, that's in that paradigm, the right attitude, but those are few and far between also, you know, like, like they, they really, really don't want that kind of person. So I think you're right. in that there are those who think that way. And I think that's how it would get sold, but the powers that be, I don't think that's the way they think about it. I, I think it's a, like, a, in my opinion, it's an economic play. Um, the other part, as far as why is this getting tested in the military? Because also that's a really great, that's a great set of guinea pigs oh, to yeah. get access to, right? Yeah, that's actually, I was just thinking the same thing. Right. So here's the thing is that, yeah, you've got a, you've got a lot of guinea pigs and this is not new. Um, oh yeah, they'll sign up for anything. Uh, we, sure. And, and I mean, you can talk to, and I have talked to service people who I, who I actually served under, who served in Vietnam. And there were a lot of them who would always talk about, don't take the pills, toss the pills, whatever they are, over your fucking shoulder. Like wow. during Vietnam, there were a lot of experiments done on soldiers. And military people themselves who were still in service in the 21st century 
knew that they were doing that and it was wrong. Okay. Because they weren't being told about the experiments. Right. And it was all experimental pills to combat whatever horse shit was over in Vietnam, you know? And so this isn't anything new. Now this might be like, okay, no, now we know, you know, NAD plus does this and that's okay. And, 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 and blah, oh, blah, maybe blah. that's why they're talking about this one is because it's something that we know has proven benefits. Well, already. that's why they're willing to talk about it. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's that aspect of it. The other part though, is that here, here's what people got to, got to, got to understand about the military. The military is socialism writ large. Okay. It is, it is a, dare I say a socialist paradise. And I don't use that term in the literal sense. Okay. Uh, I say paradise tongue in cheek, but it's a socialist paradise. Everything is paid for. Okay. Everything is handled. There's housing no matter what. Oh, you can't afford, you know, an apartment. That's all right. There's rooms in the barracks, uh, you know, whatever, like there, there's, there's, uh, you know, hospitals for you to go to. You might have to wait, you know, 36 hours, uh, you know, while your spleen is doing whatever, but you know, there, there's hospitals. Okay. So <laughs> it's a socialist paradise. All right. Everything is paid for. In fact, you listened. I, did, did you tell me about this book? Fuck. I, I don't, I, there, there was, there's an audible original where, where a guy talks about this and I had to deal with this. I mean, a lot of service people have to deal with this is that when you're in the military, everything's paid for, everything's handled. You just hurry up and wait. You do X, Y, and you get Z out of it, you know, and, and, and everything. When you get into the real world, not, there is no cushion, not everything is underneath you and not everything is okay. You know, just do the best and then wait and whatever you, you did what you were ordered to like, no, in the real world, like, there's got to be, there, there, there are a lot of other factors involved. I'm not explaining this very well. I wish I could re recall this guy's story, but the point, you know, in some ways it is like Starfleet where you really don't have to worry about things. There's anything, there's going to be food. There's going to be this. You have this under cushion where you can just think about the job. You don't have to think about, you know, like the finances or is there going to be a, a roof over my head or like all these other things. And when you get out of that, it becomes a real problem. Okay. So in the military, everything's paid for, you know, what, what they allow you to have, everything's paid for. Okay. It'd be nice if body armor was paid for, but it's not. So everything's paid for. So this is, uh, you know, this is a, a place where technologies can get developed and they have been for the past hundred, 150 years. A lot of technologies have come out of military projects and military funding. Medicine is just kind of the latest arm of that where medicine is now effectively. And it's a trick that, you know, I'm sure the U S military learned from the Nazis. Medicine is now, you know, becoming a part of this military expenditure, you know, and this is one of the more palatable examples. You know, it's funny you say that this is an arm of that because mm -hmm. I, I'm reminded of the program army, uh, which is actually being developed in, mm -hmm. in New Hampshire by Dean Kamen, right. uh, working with the military to do all sorts of cool bioengineering stuff. Right. Yeah. So this is a part of, because again, you've got this group of guinea pigs and you have not just a group of guinea pigs, but you have the endless socialist slush fund, right? <laughs> right. Because like all you have to do is say national defense, oh, all right, we'll sign on the dotted line. You know, and, and, and it doesn't matter how many millions it is. Right. And so it's, it's kind of the only place that these advancements that don't require a profit or at least not a profit right away can happen. 
this is, you know, I mean, and, and it's, it's ironic. I'm not saying it's right, but like one of the big problems with science, the reason we don't, we have the reasons we're not in space right now is because it hasn't been profitable yet. You know, like it's not profitable enough. There are a lot of things that get developed by the military that have no profit margin at the end of the day, but it doesn't matter because all you have to do is say national defense and you can get all the money that you want and it can happen there. A lot of science, a lot of medicine, all the stuff happens there. Again, it's that socialist paradise. And I say that, you know, with irony. Um, well, I, there's no blueprint for the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Woo. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and it kills me too, because no pun intended there. It kills me too, because, (laughs) because you get patriots who, oh, socialism, communism, bad, you know, military, yay. Wait, what? (laughs) You you can't, you can't say the military is great and that, but, but communism sucks. You can't go send, I mean, you're, you're essentially like people don't get it. You know, during the cold war, you were essentially sending communists after communists. Like you were sending American communists after Russian communists because every military person is a fucking communist. It's, it's, it is socialism. That's where they get their money from. Yeah. It's this limitless slush fund. Who, who approved this? (laughs) You know, who said we, we, we could do that. Isn't Pfizer supposed to do this? Now, I mean, granted the military does work with a lot of civilian contractors, of course. Um, But anyway, I, I would hardly call Pfizer civilian. Oh, well, good point. Yes. There are a lot of corporations like that that I would hardly call civilian. I, I, I agree. Just because they're in the private sector, quote unquote. Sure. Doesn't mean that they're actually a private company. I've brought this up a lot of times. You know, hey, Brian, you're a brilliant guy. Why don't you go work for a company like iRobot? Guess what? I, I actually applied for iRobot. I went for an interview at iRobot. They said, Brian, would you like to work in future weapon systems? And you know, in a very kind fashion, I gave them the finger, you know, and, and just walked out like, no, I not, a, not a fucking chance. And you think, oh, it's iRobot. What are you talking about? They make those nice Roombas. They make those nice vacuums. They keep my house clean. No, they make the, sh- <laughs> uh, they make military equipment. So anyway, <clears throat> you mean the drones that are coming to hunt us down now? Yeah. Gee, it's like, boy, that all that data from your vacuum cleaner. Guess what that did? You know, fucker. <laughs> They were just tracking your movements throughout your house. Yeah, you just made a better predator drone. Good for you. So, and you paid for the privilege. Nice. You, you enhanced your own your own death, like your own killing machine. Way to go. So, <laughs> all of that said, uh, yeah, I think this is an economic play, uh, and also it's, you know, but it. The thing is, I hate calling people civilians. For the general population, yeah, this is going to be a good thing. Oh yeah, I mean, if this turns out to be the next Creed team, great, you know. And and you know what? If 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 government dollars actually went to like improving people's lives instead of you know putting the thumb on them, awesome. Uh, if uh, I, I well, want every once in a while they spit out something that's useful to everyone, like yeah, the, like the internet. Yeah. Yeah. A broken clock is, is uh, right at least twice a day. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. Weird yeah. how that happens. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's almost like we're married or something. <laughs> it's almost like we have telepathy. Whoa. Which yeah. is another thing that the military did invest money in. Yeah. Project Stargate. Absolutely. Uh, well, anyway, not, 
not Stargate with Richard Dean Anderson. This is this is different. Uh, oh boy, that could sound a whole other. And before we go down that road, I think we should we should wrap this baby up. We should. It's getting late. <laughs> it's getting late, and we're we're almost at two and a half hours. And we could just keep rambling on. We could just yeah, this could go forever. So anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, if you support socialism, support your military. <laughs> Sorry. No, that that doesn't always have to be true either. Yeah, no, 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 it doesn't. It really <laughs> Go live doesn't. in your socialist paradise on your uh, co-op farm. Yeah, just have the unironic socialist paradise. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll wrap. Uh, we'll wrap this up, Ellen. As always, I mean, you are just so fucking brilliant. It's awesome when you're on. Thank so, you, thank you, Mrs. Sovereign. <laughs> I'll take uh, a bow. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, uh, we'll wrap this up and more sovereign tech to come. Before you know it, we will see all of you. Woo! On the other side. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Are we doing a show about burps? I can't burp on command. <laughs>